This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Pele leaned in and said something to Freddie. Don't let them change you. Keep working on what makes you different and what makes you special. It was great advice, but it caused me some problems. But what could change Freddie do? Soccer is going to explode, and it's going to be around this kid. We were the Beatles. Everywhere we went, it was the Freddie show. And with that came the expectation, and with that came the pressure. New episodes of American Prodigy drop Tuesdays from Blue Wire Podcasts. What is Crack and Hardware Knox listeners? I am Dan Valley coming at you. Not only without my co-host, Adam Prommel, but on the heels of a little bit of a technical snafu from Wednesday, we had a four-hour-plus pod being put up, and I decided unilaterally, basically, I didn't necessarily talk to Adam about it, that it was best to just post these long pods every other day and timestamp them for you rather than putting them out every single day so that there's a chance some of them get buried in your player that's most likely not going to be in the cards. We will stick to, as we do these team previews, either just two teams in them, like we will have today in the Suns and the Blazers, um, maybe three teams, or it'll be one topic, one team, however we do it. Rest assured, I won't put you in a position where your podcast player is breaking, because that is what happened in iTunes and Spotify, so I apologize. I encourage you. I reposted just the James Harden Trade Ideas podcast, and it was a good one. Salman Ali and I, from uh, he's from ESPN 97.5 and also Red Nation Hoops podcast for Blue Wire. He and I came up with, I came up with, we, we collectively came up with, excuse me, 15 plus James Harden trades and we dissected them. We weren't fans of them all, but we just talked it through. It's a great pod. So if you for some reason missed it or your podcast player shut down with the original, go back, look for just the James Harden episode. Today, however, on this pod, we will be talking Blazers and Phoenix Suns. We go deep. These pods are awesome. We already went into these teams earlier in the offseason. However, they changed a lot during free agency and even before when you look at the trade for Chris Paul. So I brought back on Tara Bowen Biggs. Follow her on Twitter at T-C-B-B-I-G-G-S. She is the co-host of the We Have a Take podcast and also the Step Back Sisterhood podcast. You can check both of them out. Highly recommend them. She comes on. We have a great conversation. We'll be leading with her. Then it's on to the Phoenix Suns. We bring on both the Timeline podcast co-hosts, Mike Vigil. Follow him on Twitter at Protected Pick, spelled exactly as it sounds, and Sam Cooper at S-C-O-O-P-E-R Hoops. As I wrap up this slightly extended intro, just a reminder to please, please, pretty please with sugar on top, subscribe to us and download all of our podcasts wherever you do listen to your podcast. That helps us out a bunch. And whether you're on iTunes or not, please head over there, search Hardwood Knox, throw us that five-star rating, write a review. If you have some criticism, we are open to it. Maybe one of the hosts is just terrible at posting regular length pods that actually work in your podcast player. You can say that. 
We do hope, however, that you do appreciate all this content we're pumping out because we are probably going to be publishing daily um, up till and through the season. We have a lot to get to. I think these team previews are probably going to leak into the regular season. Um, and that's okay because they're not really previews. We're looking ahead. We're going deep. We're looking at both the short and long term for these squads. But with all the content we have coming out, we'd really appreciate if you can help us just get a little bit more noticed. And hey, even if that's word of mouth, retweet our promos on Twitter. Shout us out on Twitter. A lot of you have done that, and I, I very much appreciate it, as does uh, my co-host Fro over here. He's very appreciative as well. Tell a family member, friend, acquaintance, a random person at your job that hopefully you don't have to see in person right now. Just send a text message to a random phone number with the link to this podcast. They will thank you later if they are into basketball and suboptimal basketball takes to go with that interest in basketball. I will get out of here on that note, however, because we already talked Blazers first with Tara Bowen Biggs, and then it's on to all things Phoenix Suns with the Timeline Podcast, Mike Vigil and Sam Cooper. Tara, welcome back to the Hardwood Knox Podcast. I think this is your fourth appearance, so you are braving these choppy waters a fourth time. You're like a, officially a Hardwood Knox veteran, and there aren't many Hardwood Knox veterans because most people are like, wise enough not to come back that many times you should have told me that earlier (laughs) (laughs) three times ago i love coming on and talking to you dan i've been looking forward to this all day and i love listening to you i'm i don't know that you know that i'm like a regular listener oh you know so like i've heard everything that you guys have ever said about the trailblazers and your podcast partner's never on here when i'm on because i would have words (laughs) um well we appreciate you and the other four listeners that we have um (laughs) i mean i just want you to know that um I love talking Blazers with you, and we recorded like fairly recently. Um, once the Blazers, it was before the the bubble started, if I'm like not mistaken. And I thought we talked enough about the future when I was going through our season preview package before the off season really started. I was like, well, I might be able to get away with like not doing a specific Blazers pod because the off season is going to be so truncated. And then Portland went and did everything, and I was like, well, I obviously have to bother Tara within like two months of having her on again because a lot happened, and so. That would be my first question. Like, what were your general impressions of the the offseason? Was there anything you really liked? Anything that took you by mega surprise? Anything maybe you disliked? I honestly still can't believe how much the Blazers did. I also, like you, I thought it was just they were just going to hold tight and just roll into next season. I've been thinking that for a long time because all the way back to when Nurkic went down, I was like, it's all about getting to this season with the team as they know it. So (laughs) day after day, stuff kept happening when they went out and they got Robert Covington. It was like, what? And I think you brought up Robert Covington the last time we talked, or at least one of the times that we've talked in terms of a guy who could fill a, like a really specific need. And I'm sure I was like, ah, the Blazers are never going to do that. They never get it though. Go out and get the people that they yeah, need. I think you and Danny at the time was your podcast host. Like as soon as I like mentioned that they might have to give up. I think this is when he was still with Philly, by the way, like this is like um, <laughs> how long ago the Blazers have needed wings. Um, and at the mention of like a first round pick and something else, it was just like shot down. Like the Blazers aren't giving up a first round pick and something else. And they ended up giving up two first round picks. It, it's the whole thing has just been absolutely shocking. And the, the kind of the overarching thing that I am really impressed with is usually at this, you know, before the season starting, we're like, well, we're going to talk ourselves into Mario Hazonia <laughs> and, you know, Anthony Tolliver is going to have one of the best years that he's had in the last 10 years. And we're like, 
we, we either don't know enough about the players or they've been somewhere where they haven't even had a chance to get on the court or whatever. But all the players that the Blazers picked up this year, like have a body of work right. that, you know, it, it might be small, but, you know, Derek Jones Jr. and Harry Giles, you know, Harry Giles, like, you know, he had a whole year where he was a red shirt, but then they worked him in gradually over the last two years. And like just to decline his team option so that he could sign with the Blazers after his third season. <laughs> you know, Sacramento's our family. We, uh, I talked to Jill edge at, uh, uh, I can't remember what the name of her podcast is off the top of my head, but anyway, she's a big Sacramento fan and we were just laughing about how many, uh, players have gone back and forth between the two Hassan Whitesides, but now with, um, Sacramento. So congratulations to Blazers and, fans. And, yeah. And they got, <laughs> they got Hassan Whiteside, but yeah, but so my point is that, um, the Blazers filled needs with, people that had been in the discussion before they uh, traded away future assets, which they rarely do going to that, you know, first round pick. And um, they did it all with players that, like I said, have a body of work that we can like refer to and go, I could see how that would fit. Yeah. Like how long have we, I think every single podcast that I've been on with you, whether it was yours or it was mine, we've talked about like the Blazers need for wings. And now they just have a bunch, like to the point where people were, angry or flabbergasted that they brought mellow back because they don't want him like playing over Derek Jones jr in crunch time or something. So, uh, that leads me to like the first actual personnel question I have is I think it's been just stated that Derek Jones jr and Rocco are going to start. So you have those two with Nurk and then Dame and CJ, obviously, do you think that's the move? Because defensively, it seems like that's the move. You have your, your back three front three, whatever you want to call them, your three, four, fives, like are all, really good team defenders. Um, but I like on offense, do you think that's the right call where now you potentially have three below average shooters on the court at once? Um, I think there's a couple things going on there. I think that the reason that Derek Jones Jr. has been like announced or whatever as a starter is because they're going to be bringing Rodney Hood along gradually. Um, because I completely forgot that Rodney Hood was coming off of an Achilles injury. I keep forgetting that. And so, like, in my mind, it was, you know, Robert Covington and Hood were starting together at mm-hmm. the three and the four. And then people were like, but he's coming. I was like, oh, yeah. And then when uh, Stotts confirmed it in his uh, press conference, it, you know, so that's that's part A. Is that So that makes sense to me that they're, ha- that they're having Derek Jones Jr. start. The other thing about Derek Jones Jr. is he fills a scoring role that the Blazers haven't had for a while in that he's a cutter. You know, he wants to dunk at the rim. You know, he wants he's to come from one there. side and yeah. go to the other. And so there are, you know, we've got we've got shooters in Dame and CJ. And, you know, two people are going to be on Dame. And, you know, CJ is going to be doing, yeah, CJ is going to be doing his, his thing in the mid range. And what used to be is that everybody else just stood on the three point line, but Derek Jones Jr. is a mover, you know, he's cutting, he's going to the rim. Like when you watch him, he's like constantly in motion, not waiting for the three point line. And I just think the more variety you can have in the shooters, I particularly, I, I like that. I don't know if it's like the move if you want to have a championship team. But I think having guys who score in a variety of ways, um, that's like, I love CJ's mid range game. He has like 50 ways that he can score. (laughs) And you know, it's like just having three point shooters 
you know, okay, we'll go to, you know, defend the three point line, but I like guys who can score in a variety of ways. You actually pointed out something that I haven't really thought about is you're now guarding against the idea of Damian Lillard pulling up at the logo, but also like someone who's going to sprint end to end in Derek Jones Jr. Where that's like a, that that's not something I gave enough thought to like knowing who Derek Jones Jr. was. So maybe that ends up being a better fit than I'm expecting. And I feel like these questionable shooting wings tend to shoot um, with the exception of Mario Hazonia, actually, tend to shoot a little bit better when they're in Portland, like Mo Harkless, like how he came along there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you put him on, like, he did fine with the Clippers, but was terrible shooting with the Knicks. So if you get league average shooting for Robert Covington, you know you have three spacers on the floor. 2020 has already reshaped how we work, and it's almost over. Businesses across the globe are challenged to be their most efficient, which means every hire is critical. Well, Indeed is here to help. Unlike other sites, Indeed gives you full control and payment flexibility over your hiring. You only pay for what you need, you can pause your account at any time, and there are no long-term contracts. And now, Indeed's new way of, of matching you with candidates instantly delivers a short list of quality candidates whose resumes on Indeed match your job criteria that you can contact the moment you sponsor a job, making Indeed the only job site that can move as fast as you do. Right now, Indeed is offering our listeners a free $75 credit to boost your job post, which means more quality candidates will see it, and fast. Try Indeed out with a free $75 credit at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. This is their best offer available anywhere. Go right now to Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Offer is valid through December 31st. Terms and conditions apply. I feel like I should be asking you what the expectations are for Nurk, whether they're going to treat him like with kid gloves a little bit. But he came into the bubble, was playing over 30 minutes a game, was moving really well, played exceptionally well. And so... My one question there is like, do you anticipate like him just being full bore or could you see them maybe being like, uh, maybe he doesn't play on the back ends or front ends of certain back to backs. And my more pressing question is he's, he shot threes in Disney. He's talked about working on his jumper is Yusuf Nurkic, the three point shooter, an actual thing. Efficiency be damned. Like is, is Yusuf Nurkic like taking threes now regularly? Is that going to continue happening? There's a lot of parts of that question. <laughs> uh, okay, let's start with how much I think that he's going to play. I I don't I have not heard anything about him having any restrictions. Uh, one of the things that is just so wonderful that I love about Yusuf Nurkic is he like throws himself into everything with abandon, and so at the beginning he's going to be like going at, like two hundred percent. The thing about him on the other side is that, like, he I sometimes, like, when he's not happy, and I don't mean this like he's pouting or whatever, but, like, when um, things aren't going his way, he has a bad game basketball-wise, or if something really sad happens to him, like his grandmother dies or there's something going on in his family, you can really, like, you can see it in every fiber of his body. And, um, you know, sometimes when things aren't going well or he's having a bad week or whatever, um that's hard, but they brought Eris Cantor back. I mean, this was another one of those things. I was like, Oh my God, that makes perfect sense <laughs> to bring Ennis Cantor back. Uh, Cause he knows the playbook. We were talking about um, on our other podcast, we were talking about Ennis Cantor. And I always said that the short time that Ennis Cantor played with the trailblazers, it was like a summer romance. It was like super intense. And it was like, you're really glad that it happened. You're sad that it's over, but like you get on with your regular life, but it was like, you're never going to (laughs) forget it. That's a good way to, that's a good way to put it. 
well, what do you do when your summer crush comes walking in your homeroom door? Right. (laughs) (laughs) But now your summer crush has the playbook and already knows all the plays. And what's going to be super important this year is like, because this off season has been so shortened, like teams need to be able to hit the ground running. Right. And the Blazers are in a really good place in a lot of ways. They still have to work in Covington and Jones, but Covington and Jones, I think are going to play very similar to Aminu and Harkless. So for the other players to adjust is not going to be very hard. They're going to have guys coming off the bench who already know what their roles are. I I have not been this excited for a really long time. (laughs) There's, I I think what you also bring up too is like not even being able to hit the ground running, but I just feel like there are going to be nights where now you have to rest even people that you weren't planning on resting. Um, Like maybe Damian Lillard would get someone fired if they tried to rest him, but like Damian Lillard (laughs) might need to take like a night off here. And so just having the extra bodies in general, like, Nurkic specifically, maybe doesn't have restrictions, but he is working. You know, he's coming back. This is first full, first full. I'm using air quotes right now. Season since his compound fracture. So having Ennis Canner and Harry Giles, eventually a healthy Zach Collins. You presume if his ankle's ever okay. Uh, that I do. What I do find interesting is that the rotation behind Nurkic still feels a little unsettled. Where it's like, do you have any thoughts on who will be or who should be like the most used? backup five is it Collins when he comes back finally like moving to the five or do you think it's Giles or do you think it's just Canner in large part because of his familiarity with the way Portland plays I think initially it's going to be Cantor right because Collins like you said is out and because Giles still needs to learn you know the team and the the plays and because I think they're probably still going to be cautious with him for a while um the thing about Zach Collins that I'm very much looking forward to when he returns is he is actually a big who can shoot. He's a decent shooter. And so I think that he will probably, once he gets back to full strength, like be used more than Cantor will, um, because he will be an opportunity for a big who can shoot and, you know, Cantor can, but I'm not looking at the stats right now, but I think, I think that's what they're really hoping that uh, Zach Collins turns into. And so I would figure that they would put him in into that role. But like the great thing about Cantor is that like, he's not the thing about Cantor is that he's, he's, he's not great at anything, but he's like perfectly competent at whatever you need him to do. If you're not, if you don't have to rely on Ennis Cantor in crunch time, especially during the playoffs, I think having him is, is fine. Um, And I, the Blazers, I think, even when they had him, was that was 2019? It was after Ken, uh, Nurkic got injured, right? Like, he yeah. was part of that summer flame that you just mentioned where I think their general reaction was like, whoa, Canner wasn't as bad defensively as we expected. Like, that was part of it. So I, I guess the way the Blazers defend, like, helps accentuate him. But I think as a backup big, and maybe even as a, a backup big that's part of a platoon where you're regularly playing a third big, like, he's just perfect because he's going to come in and he's going to figure out a way to, you know, get offensive rebounds, score. He has, like you mentioned, he definitely doesn't have, like, actual range, but he can hit, like, baby jumpers. So I think for this team, he's he's fine. If you're looking for him to be your primary center um, or even someone to play, like, 25 minutes a game or something like that, it's definitely a problem. But they, I don't, I don't anticipate them needing him to do that unless, you know, something happens to Nurkic again. Knock on wood, let's hope that it doesn't. Yeah, no, I, and they barely even got a chance to play you know, together. It was only, I can't remember. It was a handful of games that both of them were healthy. Like when he came to Portland in the mid season before Yusuf Nurkic got hurt. So 
yeah, I don't know. It's I, I do agree with you that I I'm think still speechless. I do I do think that they need to give I don't even know if it's like Zach Collins a shot more at the five, but like they seemed reticent. Um, maybe that would have changed last season because he only played in eleven games. But like they just seemed reticent to use him as a five. And I know that he like could kind of move like pretty well, but like he's six eleven and he's not like super explosive laterally. And now he has ankle an ankle injury in his rear view. Like it's time to give him minutes at center. I feel like like that needs to happen. I don't think he should be. I don't know that he's going to be so good that you think about oh he he's shooting better than Nurkic so maybe he needs to play over him in certain lineups but like I I just feel like he needs to be a five and it's yet to happen and I don't know how much of that is owed to his lack of availability last season. Yeah, I still don't know what he is. All I know is that I want him to learn how to hold onto the ball after he gets a rebound. That's the most important thing to me because there was a lot of butterfingers and I'm like okay just two hands and hold onto it. Don't lose it. <laughs> And I'm sure that he will, I'm sure that he will get that under control and it'll be awesome. The wait is finally over. Football is back. You might not be at a game this year, but you can still be in on the action at Bet Online. Bet Online is going the extra mile to make sure you can get in on every possible chance to win this season. From game spreads and totals to team, player, and coaching props, Bet Online gives you more options to wager on than anywhere else. You can get in on their season opening bonuses today and start off wagering on wins, division odds, and championship futures all day, every day. Head to Bet Online today and take advantage of all the great sign up bonuses. Don't forget to use promo code BLUEWIRE, all one word, at betonline.ag. That's Blue Wire, all one word. Bet online, your online sportsbook experts. The move that people seemed most up in arms about, like the Blazers gave up two first round picks for Robert Covington. And it was just like, oh, good move, solid job. They gave Rodney Hood a fair amount of money, um, even though it's only guaranteed for one year, coming off an Achilles injury. It was like, oh, you know, we get it. Mello comes back for basically no money. And the the discourse just suddenly changes because it, it's Mello. I can't get myself to get worked up about this either way. And I I tend to be, with Mello as a role player, I guess, or a compliment, I've always been more pessimistic than not. But given how it went last season and the fact that now he's coming back and talked about how he knows he's coming off the bench, he's not playing the same number of minutes, um, and how the Blazers have done a better job, I think, than other teams of balancing the two versions of Mello, where it's you need to give him his from-scratch touches to put him in rhythm. Um, but you know, he's going to have to do a lot of catch and shoot duty, moving him to the second unit. I feel like is going to allow him to get the type of touches that will help him, uh, enter his, his rhythm. And so I'm actually optimistic that it will work. And do I think he should be closing every game? No, but he is someone who can play the four and just shot 38 plus percent from three. If there's a game where you need that on the court in crunch time, I'm not going to bemoan like him being on the floor over Derek Jones Jr. or Rodney Hood. If it becomes like habitual to the point that it's damaging, I get it. But I just feel like we need to stop viewing Melo through the lens that he was when he went to Oklahoma City and even Houston. Like the circumstances are different. And I think there's like a transparency between player and team that didn't exist at his prior stops. Yeah. Yeah. To all of that. I mean, I, I was not, you know, a huge Melo fan before he came to Portland and then just the way that he has worked himself into the team, not just as a player, like that was almost in some ways kind of a bonus that he could still play in my, in my opinion, it was just kind of a bonus that he could actually play really well mm -hmm. because the way that the other 
players really like him and the way that he came in and he didn't like try to take over the locker room like it's still without a doubt damian lillard's locker room but imagine trying to take a locker room from damian lillard you'd be tossed out so quickly (laughs) i know i know but like he didn't he came in with 16 years of experience so you didn't have to worry that he was like in the wrong place or whatever like he knew what he was doing and Damian Lillard didn't have to, and CJ and whoever was holding the ball or whatever, didn't have to worry about it. You know? Yeah. Did he back down a lot of times when he could have like kicked it out? <laughs> yeah. He's mellow. Right. So I, in my, I just, I gave up getting mad about that. Um, <laughs> the thing that I am going back and forth about is like, I don't, I don't care if he starts, if he has to start, fine. I don't care. It doesn't matter like who starts. I don't believe he's going to because now we're hearing that he has had the talk with Coach Dobbs about coming off the bench. And so, in my heart of hearts, I want him to just feast on those second units, and I want him to get sixth man of the year. <laughs> that that would, Look, if he's like, he's not going to play as much, I don't think, and that was going to be my next question is, how do you kind of like envision his minutes going? Just because he, they, I think the thing that was impressive, whether people thought he was like positively impactful or net neutral or adversely impactful they plucked him at the age of 35 out of an empty gym after not playing in the nba Off game for the base. Couch. yeah he averaged 15 points on 38.5 percent shooting from deep um and played over 30 almost 33 minutes per game now that i'm looking at it and so i'm just curious now that let's just assume that he'll definitely be coming off the bench. And I think that's what everyone's basically said at this point, including himself. How many minutes do you think looking at this rotation, how deep it is like in the wing spots, do you envision them being able to, to carve out for him? Or do you think maybe it's going to be like a level of inconsistency? Because I even think Mello mentioned something about how Stotts told him like, you know, you're not going to play on certain ends of back to backs. Like you're just not going to play. So like, was that sort of a, a warning sign that, you know, you're also not going to play because certain matchups are not going to allow you to play. You know, I think this year, because the Blazers do appear to have more defensive versatility, it's, it'll be really nice at the end of the games where we can be deciding, okay, at the end of the game, do we need offense or defense? And I think if you need offense at the end of the game, you want Carmelo Anthony in the game. And if you want defense, you probably want somebody else. And I think, I'm, I think, and I hope that, he will be able to adapt to the slightly more or less consistent nature, you know, cause the nice thing about starting is that, you know, you're going to, you know, you're always going to be there when the first whistle blows, you know, but in the past, the Blazers have done things where um, they've had guys who like had no business starting who were not really starter worthy at the time, but they were slotted in for the first six minutes of the first quarter and the first six minutes of the third quarter, like clockwork right? for like, you know, developmental purposes or whatever. Um, I also think Mello is going to be like the first person to fill in if somebody gets injured okay. and they need to like, oh, we need a starter for tonight. Like throw in Mello because he knows, again, he knows what he's doing. He can figure it out. He may not play 30. He's probably not going to play 30 minutes. I'm guessing like, I don't know, 15 to 20. Would that be like super insulting to him? I don't know. But that seems accurate. Like, that seems like what this rotation might need slash have room for. Because, like, if I know you said they're going to bring Rodney Hood along gradually, but, like, if once he's available, like, Rodney Hood was shooting 55-plus percent on catch-and-shoot threes when he got injured last year. Like, Rodney Hood needs to play. Gary Trent Jr. is probably coming off the bench, too. 
you and I both know Gary Trent Jr. has to play. That's not negotiable. So 15 to 20 minutes, it's a huge cut, but it also seems like probably a fairly accurate description of where he ends up at. I mean, when I was 36 years old, I would have, you know, been happy to like, you know, maybe take a few extra minutes of rest. But that's I'm not a superstar. I'm not a Hall of Famer superstar. But, you know, the other thing is, is just uh, I don't know if you heard. I think it was J.J. Reddick's podcast where Carmelo Anthony was a guest and he talked about the starting and not starting and coming off the bench. And he talked about he was like completely not in that place yet because he didn't understand like what it what he was supposed to do coming off the bench. He didn't know how he was supposed to make himself ready to go in the game when he wasn't there at the mm-hmm. beginning. He didn't know like what he was supposed to do to like cheering on the other guys and like the wave in the towel. And he's like, I don't, this is like not, I don't, this is not my world. And so now he's had time to think about it. As far as I can tell, you know, the, the team has really good communication with each other. And I think that he'll be able to figure out, what his role is. And like Damien has always been as far as I know, having no direct experience, but he's always been reportedly, you know, the kind of leader that everybody feels like they can talk to and the kind of leader that when he talks to somebody, they respond like early on when Nurk first came, you know, he had to have the talk with Nurk. Um, and I don't think he's going to have to have the talk with Mello, but I think he's approachable enough. And if Carmelo were to be struggling with it in any way, I like to think that the chemistry and the, history of the team, they would be able to work through it. And I think Melo even said that in a piece for The Athletic. He said that he appreciated the transparency of Damian Lillard telling him what his role was going to be. So it's like one thing to hear it from the GM or the coach, but to hear it from like the best player on the team, um, who's like, you know, it says something about Damian Lillard where he's still, he's way better than Melo now, obviously, but he's still like Melo's junior because Melo has that seniority. For him to be able to say something like that and for like, mellow to just respect it. I think that's a huge part of it too. Like, I don't know. I definitely think in Oklahoma city, just the, that was a shell shock for him. And then you go to Houston where I don't think anything was really made clear to him, even when it was told he was coming off the bench. So I, I, my guess would be maybe this isn't like a rousing success, but I, my guess would be because of what we saw last season. And in large part, because of Damian Lillard, that this mellow off the bench experiment goes far better than any of the other ones that we've seen. And I can see a lot of times at the end of the game, like I said, just because of familiarity, Stott's putting him in. Like, I I see Melo playing a lot of, like, really important minutes, too, just because of his experience. Like, Stott's going to, like, uh, he he tends to, you know, choose the veteran over the unproven guy in, you know, in the tight situations. And we haven't even talked about, like, non-basketball-wise what Melo means to the team. To Oh my gosh, it was so cute on uh, media day. Harry Giles told a story about how he um, uh, wrote a paper about Mello in grade school. And they were like, oh yeah, like how old were you? And he was like, I think I was in second grade. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> That's imagine that Mel's got to feel old after that. I feel old thinking about that. Right. But my point is, you know, he means a lot to them and he has so much that he could, you know, impart on these guys, I think. And I am one of the things I love about this off season and this upcoming year is that we now have a group of younger players, um, you know, in Anthony Simons and Zach Collins and Gary Trent Jr. and now Harry Giles and Derek Jones Jr., we have these young players who are all about the same age who grew up, you know, with Carmelo Anthony posters on their wall. And think how much he can teach them right. about everything that he's learned. 
especially now when he's kind of acknowledging like that's the point of the career of his career that he's at. And he's also this has been like a like a an actual secret I feel like for a while. He's really been relatable to younger players for a while. Like it started before he left New York. Like all the young guys really appreciated even though that the exit was sort of messy. They all they all like appreciated him and so his ability to relate to or you know talk to a guy like Harry Giles if that's something he can impart like any wisdom or anything. I think that's actually huge you did mention that you could see him playing important minutes down the stretch which i think is the fear of a lot of people like they don't think that should happen um a lot of it we know will be dictated by matchups but if you if, if it was your choice who would be the most common closing five for this team um let me think i obviously dame and cj and nurkic and um if they again if they need offense, mellow. And if they need defense, put in Covington and make sure Gary Trent is in there too. So Dame, CJ, Nurk, and Gary Trent. So those, Gary are, Trent those are your that, four, right? Yeah. And you put in my, if I was coach, which I'm obviously not, I would put Trent on you know, the best player. Like he's, he's the, just, he is just ferocious. I mean, the Gary Trent versus LeBron minutes in the bubble in the finals are probably the most important minutes that he's <laughs> played for this team. Like I was like when they were going, I was like, yes, I'm so glad they're playing the Lakers because Gary Trent Jr. is going to guard LeBron and he's going to learn so much. So you want Gary Trent Jr. on the, the best individual play, play one on one defense. Um, and then if you need defense, then you got Covington in there to, you know, run the team defense. But if you need a bucket. It's mellow. I I think I probably am in lockstep with you. I would probably just default to Covington because you have so with CJ and Dame. I would hazard you have enough shot creation. Even Nurkic with his passing, um, Trent. I actually would be my other must include because I think he's probably there. He's their best shooting wing, unless you know what Rodney Hood is post Achilles, which we just we don't. Um, and uh, hey, I'm looking forward to see um, contract year Gary Trent. I feel like that could be like a pleasantly different experience compared to what we've seen. Now, maybe you're not looking forward to it because of what they would have to pay to keep him. Uh, but I'm looking forward to just looking at his performance. What, a, like if that's how he was like last season, like he, he has to sense the opportunity for him to get paid uh, next summer. And so I feel like contract year, Gary Trent, um, he, I feel like we could, I feel like Gary Trent, you might surprise a lot of people in how he maintains or improves his performance especially on the defensive end just some of the the things i we saw from him in in disney you're like you're you're holding your mouth right now like you're terrified so the last time we talked had gary trent signed with clutch yet uh i do not remember because he has and my gut just sank (laughs) i'm so scared of what's going to happen with him having like this ultra powerful represent. I'm so afraid of now about um, whether or not the Blazers, what they're going to have to pay to keep Gary. Trent. I think that they will pay whatever they need to, um, but it might be a lot and it might be hard for, um, you know, building another team, but you know, I don't, I don't, that's not my business. Um, but the Lakers I, will not have the money to sign him next summer. If that's any consolation. No, but they will. The, if they if they have their eye on him, they'll figure out <laughs> That's a good when to get him. And you know, the other thing is like, I I'm not sure if this is the situation he's going to be in next year. But I think I'm worried about somebody else 
signing him to like when he's a restricted free agent that somebody will sign him to something like absolutely astronomical and the Blazers will match it because I think that they probably should, but it'll be a really uncomfortable amount of money. Like what happened and, with Alan Crabb, except Gary Trent Jr. is better than Alan Crabb. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I believe that in Gary more than I believed in, in Alan, I think Gary is more proven, but just like karma, because there's <laughs> been a lot of times where the blazer, like, and it's all my fault. So, uh, the, when, okay, Portland, I believe signed okay, uh, Cantor to a sheet that OKC ended up yes, matching. Yes, I remember that. Yeah. And then they ended up cutting him. We got him like for a song. Right. <laughs> and I and I was crowing about that. Like, oh, look what Portland did. They're so smart. And so if, if we lose Gary Trent, I'm so afraid it's all my fault. <laughs> We're just talking smack about OKC. <laughs> Uh, if that's a, I haven't given enough thought to him signing with Clutch, but yeah, his next price point uh, will be fairly. If he has a good season, which I feel like he's going to, just based on how he finished last year, his price point is going to be high. I would, I agree with you that I think he needs to be in the closing lineup, and your other three are set um, with Nurkic, CJ, and Dame. And I, I probably default to Covington because at that point, I think you need more of like the reliable big defender. But you're absolutely right that if you do need like someone who's at least comfortable creating his own shot. Like, after Dame and CJ, it's mellow on this team. Like, there's nobody else. Like, Gary Trent Jr. can do, uh, I guess, Anthony Simons in theory, um, but not reality at this point. Uh, and then Gary Trent Jr. is someone he, he can do some stuff off the bounce, which I think I mentioned to you either in our last pod or the pod before that because they're all blurring together at, at, in this pandemic <laughs> reality we live in. Uh, he surprised me what he can do off the dribble. But, like, in terms of just, like, half-court – you need a shot. Like it's Dame, CJ, and then the next best best option right now is probably still Melo. Yeah, yeah. Is there? Have you given any thought to? Is there any like quirky lineup you would like to see? Not necessarily as a closing lineup, just you know, get weird. Like, is there? They should try this or test this out at some point in the season. Well, I mean, I mentioned earlier the the young players. I'm just super excited to see what they can do. I can't wait to see what happens when we have. Anthony and Gary and Derek Jones Jr. out on the floor together. And uh, we have Naz Little was our rookie last year. I don't expect we're going to see him very much, but there was a fun lineup last year that I used to call the pink shoe shift because they wore pink shoes. And it was uh, it was Gary and um, Naz and Anthony. And they were they were just they were just really fun to watch. Naz Little is like a lot of energy. He's kind of like a tornado tornado out there. Um, But yeah, I, of course, you know, Damian Lillard and everything that he has done is amazing. And, but I'm really excited to watch the guy. I, I just always love the younger players. And I'm really excited about this past offseason because they took care of both the present help Damian now by getting somebody who can play defense. But also they're looking to the future with all these younger players and like, imagine if they, the, those younger players pick up how to play defense from Robert Covington. Right. And, you know, and Derek Jones Jr. already plays defense. So I'm, I'm just really excited that the Blazers have not only planned for now, but appear to be planning for the future. I told you I was going to bring this up when we were talking on the side. Would you be completely opposed to lineups that have Mello at the five, where you have Mello, Rocco, Derek Jones Jr. and like that's your front line, so you surround him with defense. And I'd probably put 
Gary Trent Jr. in there as well with Damian Lillard. I don't think that's a lineup that should be playing like minutes that are super important. But, you know, until Zach Collins comes back, like maybe if you're, you know, Harry Giles isn't playing well or Canner's not playing well. Um, I have to disclose, though, that I'm like an endless lobbyer of small ball lineups. So I'm just a sucker. If you can convince me that anyone like six, seven to six, nine can play center, like I'm going to say that they should go play center. And look, you well, have Robert, Robert Covington. Covington can play center. Th- that's what I was going to say. Like he's used to it with Houston. So like, does it in theory make that more a- achievable or am I just completely off my rocker here? Well, what is it that you like about small ball? Um, I like the mismatch this isn't a word but mismatchality it creates on the offensive end and so if I can find a center um who or let me put it this way if if you can have like a PJ Tucker guy who you know can play center um and it allows you to play smaller elsewhere with people who can put the ball on the floor so this would be the situation with Robert Covington you said you know he defended some fives in Houston and he can defend bigger wings to begin with so it's not like a huge jump um against certain bigs um no you don't want him defending like uh Joel Embiid like I totally understand that um, and so if you're having like mellow where you're going to have centers or maybe traditional fours or slower wings that are more inclined to match up with him because he's at the five spot and you have nowhere else to really hide them, that does a, a, a huge thing in my mind for Portland's offense. Maybe they're not a team that needs that because they have Damian Lillard and CJ McCollum, um, but just to kind of like make yourself matchup proof on the offensive end. I know a lot of people focus on defense with these lineups. One, I'm not going to focus on that with Melo being the the centerpiece of that. But two, uh, I just the the offensive benefits seem like they could be pretty significant. Yeah, you know, and I haven't seen how much uh, Covington can screen, but I love like big screens, and I, you know, Damian really depends on his big centers for clearing out space for him. That's true. Yeah. Um, and that was like, it was hard last year. Was Hassan was not as good as uh, Nurkic or Cantor. Cantor was also good at it. And Melo can set a pretty uh, pretty tough screen. But I haven't, I haven't he watched it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. Well, um, maybe I guess they wouldn't try it, but that would be my two cents on it. Um, we did talk about I'll Gary. I'll call you up if it does. I'll chat you. Like, hey, yes, I'm gonna your need, lineups in. Yeah, I'm going to need to put you on like mobile notifications now. Just your tweet. You need to send like a, a Mellows at the Five signal out so that I can okay. see it. Um, <laughs> so I think we've established Gary Trent Jr. of Zach Collins and Simons. That trio is the most important player to the Blazers long term. Do you have any feel for like or your thoughts? Who means more to this team long term now between Collins and Simons? And it feels like a, a weird question to ask given how un, untouchable um, Simon seemed at the end of the 2018, 2019 campaign when he just was, he was molten, just like making every single shot he could off the dribble. I think he's, was it the Kings he slaughtered in the final game of, of that season? Um, yeah, it was all of the rookies. Yeah. And he just like last year was just not, not pretty. And I, I'm just curious as to your thoughts. You know, you haven't even seen a ton of Zach Collins now. Who is the player that you think ends up being more important to this team long-term or both of them like kind of on the fringes now of the long-term future? Well, I think probably it's Anthony because the Blazers are very thin on primary and secondary ball handlers, and they just need somebody who can handle the ball, <laughs> like as a facilitator. And, um, you know, there's a lot that's been said about Portland not having a, a backup point guard, and then Portland says, yes, we do. It's Anthony Simons. Um and if they didn't have Anthony Simons, they'd be in a world of hurt unless they had some other point guard. <laughs> yeah, I just I guess I've never considered him like good enough to fulfill that role. And so 
I think he might be the type of player where he has a higher ceilings than Collins, but for what the Blazers need, Collins feels like he has the better chance of panning out than Simons because having you've watched him play far more than I have, so definitely overrule this, but I don't see like a facilitator in him when I watch him play. Well, so the thing you have to remember about Anthony is that he didn't play college. So like he's kind of a year behind in development in terms of just playing with grown men for a lack, you know, lack of, of better words. Right. Okay. You know, so, you know, the fact that he didn't take a big leap last year isn't too concerning to me. Um, and I really hope that this year they, the Blazers are in a better place where they can let him stay out there and make mistakes and learn from them because last year they were so thin. If he yeah. got out there and made a mistake, they were like, you're out of here. Go back into Damien. And I'm hoping that with some of the other players that have been added, bolstering the whole roster, that maybe Anthony will get a chance to uh, get more prolonged runs and uh, be able to benefit from that. And they clearly have to still believe in him because they did not sign. And I know like they've just never signed backup point guards to real deals, but they could probably have Shabazz Napier back for no money at this point. And the fact that they didn't sign someone else do you think that that like speaks to their their continued confidence in his development? I'm guessing, and obviously you can stagger Dame and CJ, so you don't necessarily need your backup point guard to be high end. But I'm also reading it as well. This team clearly still like believes in what he showed during his rookie year. Yeah, I think that they will stick with him for quite a while, and um, you know, I think this is a really important year. I think this year is going to be more important than last year was. I just like I said because he just is is new is still pretty new. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm a little bit concerned because, so they do have an open roster spot. I'm just, I'm worried. Like my biggest fear about the Blazers and their success this season is for COVID. Right. Like I'm more worried about the disease than anything else, because what are they going to do if somebody on the team gets it? And And like two weeks is probably like eight games, seven games. Yeah. So they have an empty roster spot right now. So I'm thinking it's possible that they're keeping it open. I don't know for sure, but maybe they're keeping it open so that like if somebody does get, I don't know when the cutoff is for when they can fill the spots, but um, I'm just wondering if they're just, you know, going to give Anthony time, see how it goes and figure out what they need. They they do that. They tend to like, yeah, have, they like, have until I think spot for a while. I think the playoff cutoff date is in April or something this year, if I'm not mistaken. And I yeah. do think that the I don't know if they've made this official, and I'm make I hope I'm not making it up, but I think I saw that they're going to have like emergency roster spots where if COVID becomes an issue, you're able to add so. people. Um, that's such a murky issue to deal with, and I don't want to boil it down to this. The Blazers seem as long as it's not Damian Lillard, the way the Blazers built their roster, like they seem like they're better navigated now than a lot of teams to to get through absences. And that's definitely something I'm not sure that you could have said last year. Oh my gosh. I mean, we saw what happened when they, you know, had health problems last year, they ended up with Anthony, Anthony Tolliver, God bless him starting. And, you know, it's not like his career is over or anything, but at the beginning of the season, when they signed him, that's not what the plan was. Right. Um, I wouldn't. So I look at the Blazers and I feel like, a lot will go into this, and I think you mentioned one of them, the, the roster spots in COVID, like how solid is their team, like how available is everybody. But they, I feel like, are 
is there a chance they keep the transaction train rolling here? I guess what I'm going to let down to, because you look at what they have, uh, they only have like their first round picks are only traded through next season. So they could technically trade a 2023 one. If they wanted, you have Simons, you have, um, Nas little, you have Zach Collins, you have, I would advocate you don't dangle him, but you have Gary Trent jr. And then you have like these, this digestible salary in Rodney hood, because it's not guaranteed next year. I think it's a team option or whatever it is. So, but for matching purposes, like they might have another move in them um, towards midseason, and I know they've always kind of played that a little bit more conservative as well. But one, they didn't do that this offseason, and two, um, I don't want to step on the toes of the you know record and standing predictions that I'm going to ask you. With the number of teams in the West that didn't get better this year, like the Lakers, I think got better, but like after that, like Portland might be the only like playoff team that I think improved noticeably over the off season. And so there might be an element of, Hey, we should go for it this season. And so I'm, um, I almost feel like they could do something else in the middle of the year. I think it's unlikely. I think they have gone for it. Okay. Um, and I think, uh, I'm not saying that it's impossible, but they've been waiting a really long time for this team. Again, with Nurkic just coming back, I mean, I don't think that they would make any big moves until they've actually seen what Dame, CJ, Nurkic, Rodney Hood, like they they were waiting for that team. Mm-hmm. And so I just don't think that they're going to make any changes. You know, things could happen. So you don't you never know for sure. But I am pretty sure that they'll keep the, their main players the same. What's a realistic uh win total and you could base it off an 82 game season um for this team or even and also like a a standings finish in the west for them this season like what is a a realistic expectation for now given how they're built now well realistic you had to say realistic uh this is like i said this is the most optimistic i've been about this team in a really really long time and i think that third in the west is not um, I, I think third or even possibly second in the West, whatever that takes is where I see them finishing. They've finished four a couple of times where they had like no business finishing four. <laughs> so I think that they, I think they actually have business. And if they don't finish in the, you know, top four, then they didn't accomplish as much as I think that they could have this year. I, I agree with that that last part. Like I feel like they are a clear top four team in the West uh, right now, and I do feel like their ceiling is two because I, one of the Lakers or the Clippers is not going to care enough about this regular season. I'm convinced. Maybe both of them, but at least one of them. And then after that, like just looking at who the Nuggets lost, um, the Rockets are just they're already combusting. So like you're not going to count on them. The Thunder have taken themselves out of it. The Jazz are kind of the same. Basically, like they've improved their backup center minutes a bunch. Dallas, I think, got a little bit better. Uh, but I'm just looking at these teams, and after Golden State loses Clay, I don't know how many you can say are definitely going to finish in front of Portland. Um, I don't, if they, I'd be shocked if they got to first. Um, I might set it like the over under of teams better than them in the West at 2.5, and I'm not totally inclined to take like the over on that because of the way they built their team. And maybe I'm like getting too caught up in how it all looks on paper and we have to see it on the court. But I think I, I agree with you. Like this should be a top four team in the Western conference, given the moves that they've made. And like, I'm just still kind of floored at how good Yusuf Nurkic was 
in the bubble. And that's like sort of its own free agency addition. Like we've already seen him play, but now you have him for the entire year. Yeah. Um, I look at probably Dallas and Denver as the teams most likely uh, to be in contention ahead of the Blazers. Denver, just because of what they went through last year, you know, uh, there's nothing that's more like, you know, the bonds guys more than a long playoff run. Right. right. <laughs> um, and I know that they lost some really key players, but that's also sort of like when that happens, people kind of discount them more than maybe they should. So I think the Blazers will have to be very vigilant when they play Denver. We know they can beat Denver. Um, and, but they have to be very vigilant about it. And, Apparently the universe is just like giving the Dallas Mavericks this year and they're just like handing Luka Doncic the MVP and it's like, you know, whatever. So we'll see how that goes. But I did watch some Robert, Robert Covington uh, highlights today and he handled himself pretty well against that team. So, yeah, to have someone that can go up against that guy, like it's not like Marcus Morris did a fantastic job on him in the Clippers Mavericks series and he was still getting annihilated. Like, but you at least have someone. <laughs> that you can put on him to slow him down. And I think that might be the best way to frame it because um, I'm in lockstep with you on the nuggets. Like I think they're worse, but for the regular season, I don't, I don't know that it makes a huge difference losing Grant and Tory Craig. And also like if Jamal Murray is like, if this is his breakthrough year, if it's an extension of what he did in Disney, then they technically could be better. And so the best way to frame this is I'd probably peg one of the Clippers or Lakers to finish in front of Portland. And then one of the Mavericks or nuggets, like his terms of certainties, which feels like third, is a re- to aim for third is a realistic expectation for this team. If they're lower, aside from underachieving, is it possible though that maybe they don't place too much of a stock in just trying to duke it out that hard in the regular season? Or do you think they're really going to try and go for one of those top playoff seeds? Damian Lillard plays every single game like it is the most important game he's ever played. <laughs> Unless like they pin him down and say, no, you're not going in tonight. He's going to act like every game is the most important. And the guys on the team are like, they fall. They, they, as far as I can tell, they do what their leader as their leader goes. Like it's so fun to watch. It's been really fun to watch uh, Yusuf Nurkic over the last few years, like kind of develop into like Dame's Lieutenant. Like you can tell that he admires him so much and that he wants to like be like Dame. And um, yeah, like if, if Dame wants to win the game, Yusuf wants to win the game. And if Yusuf wants to win the game, then everybody else better get on board. Uh, that's such an interesting transition when you look at Nurkic, how he went from pouting, like from how they were, he was being used in Denver to like, he was before he was injured. I would say that season he was probably Portland's second best player, like even ahead of CJ, right? Yeah, I mean, maybe I don't know, but maybe for sure. I mean, yes, yeah, maybe. <laughs> I'm really uh, positive about this. My final question is: Is there anything I missed that you wanted to cover, or that you think is being underrepresented with this team? Do you have any? Is there a spicy Damian Lillard's going to win MVP prediction coming? Um, anything? It the the floor is completely yours. I feel like. We we often, when we talk about the Blazers, don't talk about CJ enough. And one of the things about CJ that I appreciate is that doesn't seem to bother him. Um, and so I'm, I would love CJ to get some sort of league-wide recognition this year. Um, you know, 
possibly if he, if he has a really good year and, you know, with clay out and, you know, some of the other, uh, you know, guards not in the West anymore, you know, maybe he could get some kind of, you know, coaches selection for uh, all-star or like a third team or something like that. But I would really like CJ to get some um, appreciation and kudos, but I have a question for you. There's a hot debate going on in Portland right now. Um, and it's about Carmelo Anthony. Oh boy. And, um, so Carmelo Anthony, as we all remember him in New York, wore number seven and he has a whole brand built around the number seven. And when he came to Portland, they, the Blazers is my understanding, um, did not want him to wear number seven. Cause that is Brandon Roy's number. Brandon Roy's number is not retired. Um, but it's just been sort of assumed since he, since he, retired that people would not use his number and today at a press conference Mello said that he would really like to wear the number seven and he would really like people to start a petition so that he can wear number seven so i'm not asking you like you don't have to like you know just talk about that what is, what are your thoughts okay so the way Mello's going about it seems awfully tactless like, if that's a conversation you want to have behind the scenes, to go public with it, where I still feel like we forget, at least nationally, how good Brandon Roy was. But I would think in Portland, like, there's that implicit, like, appreciation for how ridiculously good he was. My overarching thought, though, is that I'm okay hanging players' jerseys in the rafters. Um, like, why do we need to retire numbers? Like, they're still going to be, like, associated with them, and especially if they're jerseys in the rafters. Um, that being said, I, I go back to my initial point. Like, why? Like, no, Mello. Like, lean into the, you know, I, lean into double zero also because that's just objectively, like, offbeat and, I think, cooler. So I'm kind of perplexed. Like, is this him hanging on to something because he's not starting anymore? Why would you go public with that? So I would... I have no horse in this race, but I would advocate not signing a petition so that he can wear that jersey <laughs> number. Uh, how do you personally feel about that, though? I really could care less. It doesn't matter. The numbers on the jersey don't matter to me at all. And to his like, in in his defense, he was asked, "Will you ask to wear number oh, okay. seven? Okay. So he didn't like just out of the blue say that we needed to go do a petition, but he was like, he was like, "Yeah, I'd like to have number seven. Hey, why don't you start a petition?" Um, but it is a very hot debate right now that is, that is going on on blazer Twitter. If what you want to like, go watch given it, given your pulse, like what is the prevailing sentiment there then is that, well, from the people that I see in my timeline, that Twitter has chosen to put into my algorithm. <laughs> <laughs> Shockingly, they have the same opinion as me, which is like, let him wear number seven. It's mellow. He's probably only going to be here for a year anyway. And you know, it's Carmelo Anthony. And like, it's not like he's, it doesn't take away anything from what Brandon Roy did for the franchise. Right. And the thing about Brandon Roy wasn't just that he was good. It's that people felt like he saved the franchise where nobody was watching them. People, well, not nobody, but like, you know, fans had like really turned away from them and Brandon Roy came and just, it was like a, there's a whole generation of blazer fans you know, for whom Brandon Roy is everything. Okay, yeah. One of my and editors just, at Bleach Report is like an absolute Brandon Roy diehard because uh, he's from Portland. So like, yeah. that's why I just assumed it would be sacrilegious for Melo to ask to wear. 
number seven. Um, it makes me feel a little bit better about it that he was asked about it. I probably should have assumed that. The petition thing, and I have not seen this, so I could just be commenting on, be completely off base here. That's stupid. Like, that's, if you were going to say anything to that, like, have that conversation, like, strictly behind the scenes. Like, let's not get a petition going to get Mello to wear number seven. That's my take. That's my spicy take on the matter. Uh, that just seemed like a 2020 thing to say. <laughs> um, I will say to your CJ point really quickly, um, I'm in charge of doing um, Bleacher Report's top 100 this year entering the season. And I'm not going to spoil where I have him, mostly because I haven't completely worked it out. But he will be ranking higher than he did for me last year because I think I've come to the – I'm not giving him 13 like ESPN did. I think it was last season. I thought that was egregiously high. I mean, a lot of people don't like player rankings. I tend to enjoy them. But uh, I've gained an appreciation for what he does in the postseason where it's like there are players that can do what he does in the regular season, and it's not going to translate to – the postseason and these guys don't play exactly like him. So I'm not comparing their games, but you look at a DeMar DeRozan or a Lou Williams, how good they've been during the regular season. I feel like CJ McCollum's importance heightens in the playoffs because he's still hitting those same shots. And I, it's probably taken too long. And I think I got there like a little bit earlier, but like after last season, like I'm just there, he's, a better player or more valuable player in the postseason than the regular season. And I actually think that's a big deal because of how rare that is. So that yeah, is my, I, that is my CJ McCollum appreciation. I hope that at least placates you a little bit. I like it. I like it. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's gotta be at once like pure joy to, you know, play alongside Damian Lillard. Um, but you know, these guys all have big egos and, you know, they all want to be the best player on the team. And, uh, you know, CJ has just been so solid and, you know, such a great partner for Damien. And he just, I think, gets a lot, you know, lost. I'll go like weeks without even bringing him up on the podcast when it's like, oh, he's been scoring like, you know, 22 points a game. And I like keep forgetting that, he, that he's there. I find myself not asking like a ton of questions. Um, I mean, I've really only talked Blazers with you over the past few years now about Damian Lillard or CJ McCollum when we go on Blazers deep dives because they're just so known. And like, that's sort of a compliment in itself with CJ though. It's whenever people have talked about making changes to the Blazers, it's not trade Damian Lillard. It, you gravitate towards Trey C.J. McCollum. And so that's where, like, I definitely see where, like, that can come in where it just feels like he's underappreciated because he's always viewed, at least till this point, like the player that needs to be moved if the Blazers want to go in a different direction um, or substantially improve the roster or just make any sort of significant change. And I think they proved this summer that that was, in fact, not true. <laughs> and I want to thank you for waiting this long to even say those words about trading C.J. because that's something that people often who are not Blazer uh, fans will bring up like right at the beginning. <laughs> There's like, I get, I get it because, and having been on like the receiving end of some Blazers fan vitriol, which is fine. Um, I've said this on this podcast before Blazers fans are like one of the most knowledgeable fan bases I've ever interacted with. Um, they're also probably one of the three most critical. And it's like, I apologize for like not knowing like the, you know, the cadence of Anthony Simons' dribble when he's going to his left. Like you watch the Blazers more than I do. Um, but uh, you have to be like, to, to ask the CJ McCollum trade question, you have to be wildly out of touch with like what Portland's been doing um, for this long. And so like, that's like the, as someone who's again, not covering this team day to day. Yes. I've just asked you about a lot of low hanging fruit, I'm sure. But like, how are we still talking about like CJ McCollum trades? Like, how is that? I didn't even know that was still a thing to be honest with you. 
Well, I mean, it's still a topic of conversation because it's always been like people so want a championship for Dame. And like you said, they think, well, CJ is like the second best player. So he probably, you know, affords the best opportunity to, you know, get like the big star. But like when you listen to Damien talk about it over and over and over again, he wants to do it with his guys and CJ is his guy. I mean, Damien, one of the things that I love about him is that he loves with all his heart every single player who he's ever played with. And he just said the other day, he was like, if it was up to me. George Papadakis would still be on this team. <laughs> whatever Papa Giannis, what's his yeah, name? Papa whatever Giannis, that, yeah. Yeah, he just pulled that out of the air. He was like, if it was up to me, he'd still be on the team. So like he is so fiercely loyal to his players. He's like and still I ride think, or die for Evan Turner or something. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. Like, I mean, yeah. So he, he and you can just see like he gets sad every time somebody leaves. And I just can't imagine what it would do to him if um if CJ was gone, but like, let's not talk about that. I don't, they're going to be there again. They wouldn't come close to being my title pick right now, but this is as good a shot as they've had. Definitely since was that the 2015 team where they were on a tear before Wes Matthews tore his Achilles. This feels like it's going to be the best team since then, if not possibly. And I don't want to be misremembering any previous Dame led teams, but this might be the best team that Damian Lillard has, has played for at least on paper right now. Yeah, I mean, again, at least on paper, and I think again, their biggest uh, their biggest stumbling block is going to be can they all stay healthy and not get the disease? And um, twenty nine other teams know, this, are probably saying the same thing too. Yeah, exactly. Um, like it could be that that's what does them in, and not you know, um, you know, the makeup of the team. And I just think, yeah, this is the this is the best chance they've had in a really long time, and yet everything has to go right. Um, but you could see it potentially all going right and how it could work out in the end. You can actually vi- visualize that, whereas last year was a little harder. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'll say to be nice. <laughs> um, Tara, this was great as always. I really appreciate you giving me an um, hour plus of your time to do another deep dive into the Blazers. Love talking hoops with you. Um, as I mentioned at the top, everyone, if you're not following Tara on Twitter, remedy that post haste. Um, she can be found at TCB Biggs, B-I-G-G-S. That's at TCB, B-I-G-G-S. She is the co-host of the We Have a Take podcast and the Step Back Sisters podcast, which is also under the Blue Wire Hustle umbrella, which is also under the Blue Wire umbrella, which also happens to be casting an umbrella over the podcast you are listening to right <laughs> now. Um, thank you so much again for coming on, Tara. And I think, as you know, by this point, after four appearances if i'm not miscounting i will be pestering you again in the future i can't wait sam mike thank you guys so much for coming on the hardware knox podcast again i think both of you this should be your second appearance and mike this is probably your second appearance within a month um so thank (laughs) you guys for coming back on how are you doing today doing well uh thank you for having me i think last time i was on was such a uh weird and exciting episode for uh, you and I because the news about the potential Chris Paul trade uh, broke 10-15 minutes into the episode so I'm excited to be back who knows what news will break this time yeah I'm good too thanks for uh, thanks for bringing me on Dan thanks for bringing both of us on you didn't even have to choose this time so Um, hopefully we don't uh, overlap too much yeah I mean look you guys have each been on once and so I figured I might as well intrude upon both of your weekends so uh, (laughs) that made the most sense and yeah 
Look, um, I don't know if I don't know if this pod can compare to the last one because listening back, so I try to listen to every pod I record again, and that was like just trickling out news like throughout the podcast where Mike and I keep circling back because there's like another Chris Paul tidbit. So if there's something like that to do with the Phoenix Suns, I don't really know what it is because they have like no real salary to move anymore. Um, but the Phoenix Suns are like they have to be one of the most polarizing teams now after the Chris Paul trade, and so. I'm just, you know, I'll throw it to either of you first. Everyone's go first. What was the general impressions of the offseason? And even outside of the CP3 trade, uh, was there like a favorite addition, something that you thought they were still lacking after um, still? I, it was just such a whirlwind offseason for the Suns. So I'm just curious on your general thoughts of it. Go ahead, Sam. Yeah, um, well, obviously Chris Paul's the headliner here. Um, outside of him, I think the general impression was – an attempt by Monty Williams and James Jones to build on a structure that they already started uh, building last year. Um, they sort of set a system in place where the Suns led the league in assists. And, you know, even though they weren't a fantastic team, it, it kind of set up this idea of they want every single player to be a good decision maker, roughly, uh, at least relative to their position. They want as many shooters as possible. And so they brought in Chris Paul. Obviously, that's very exciting. He's going to be kind of the engine that that makes the entire operation run. But if you look at the rest of their acquisitions, I think some of those this summer are really underrated, bringing in you know shooters like Etwan Moore and Langston Galloway. Um, I, I think even maybe we could talk about their draft selection of Jalen Smith. I, I know that was a surprise, but I think that um, there are some underrated traits that he brings to the team. And then Jay Crowder, just just being my favorite of the bunch as a guy who can shoot, first of all, but also brings defensive toughness um, and a real gritty edge that he can add to this defense. So, I, you know, I think the team was just kind of trying to shore up as many weaknesses as possible and, and confirm to the rest of the world that, that they are ready for playoff basketball. Now, are they going to be a contender? Maybe not, but, but they are, certainly do look like a roster on paper that is poised for playoff basketball this year. Yeah, and and for me, your listeners know that I've been high on the idea of Chris Paul on the Suns for a while now for culture reasons as well as on the court reasons. But even beyond that, just the idea of Devin Booker playing with shooters on the team is exciting to me. He's never really been surrounded by guys who can consistently shoot really well. You know, Devin Booker was number one in potential assists last season. And if you look at that number, potential assists... One of the reasons they weren't assists is because uh, guys really couldn't shoot that well. So I think if you if you combine him with some shooters going forward, I think his playmaking could improve, but the spacing could improve as well. And you know he was up towards seventy percent at the rim last season. And if we can continue that kind of efficiency, you know beyond Chris Paul, who obviously raises the ceiling, just the guys around him I think could help improve Devin Booker and DeAndre Ayton. I think. They have, it feels like, a lot more functional shooting where um, Langston Galloway, probably more so than Etwan Moore at this point, like those are guys who can come around screens. And then uh, I tend to think the idea of Jay Crowder is a lot better than actual Jay Crowder. But yeah, absolutely, just looking at him positionally for them defensively and someone who shot the lights out in Miami, it feels like when he's kind of on better teams, um, with the exception of LeBron's Cavaliers, that he's going to shoot better anyway. So I really, I their offseason was just, for the most part to me was just thoroughly good. And I know you mentioned that there's probably not like an obvious way to say that they're contenders, but I feel like when you look at what happened in the West this off season, where uh, I would say the Lakers definitely got better for the regular season. I'm still not convinced about what they look like for the playoffs. If they still have Trez and um, Schroeder, like I'm just not crazy about those fits, but 
I don't know that any other like really good team got better. The Blazers, I think, are right there. Uh, I think you could argue the Mavericks, but I, I don't trust Kristaps Porzingis' health. Um, the Clippers will be right there, but I think the Jermichael Green loss is going to be tough for them. So I feel like there is sort of a path to the Suns entering that conversation, like at least a feasible one, maybe not a definitive one, and some stuff has to go wrong for other people. But I don't look at this as like just a rock-solid playoff team anymore after their offseason and what other other teams did. I kind of look at them as like that tier above. Like maybe they're not contenders, but they're not really like – I could see them going for more than like a, a six seed. Yeah, and, for sure. I mean, I, I think you you go ahead, Mike. Sorry. Well, I was just going to say to that point, uh, you know, media week just happened and they talked about championships. The idea of a championship had been mentioned in media week for the Suns for the first time in 11 years, basically. Uh, so, you know. I, I don't know that it's something that you can really figure out yet. This is just such a weird season in general. But to your point, it's not something that they are shying away from at the very least talking about as a possibility. So yeah, I agree. There's the, the one question. And I think Mike and I might've talked about this a little bit during the live CP3 reaction pod, whatever that thing end up, <laughs> ended up being, but what do we think is going to be like uh, the impact that Chris Paul has on Devin Booker? Is it really a matter of, we're going to see him have more catch and shoot opportunities and, and do even more cutting, or is that increase going to be, sort of negligible because they're going to stagger the minutes of these two more so maybe even than they did of Rubio and Booker. Yeah, I, th I think you're onto something there where they need to stagger them. I think bringing in Rubio last year was, was really something that allowed Booker to play an increased off-ball role essentially for the first time in his career. You know, his spot-ups went up. Um, you, you laid out some stats here. His spot-ups went up from 6.8% the previous season to 8.4% of his plays last year with, with Ricky Rubio. His cuts almost doubled. So I don't know if there's that much more room for that sort of off-ball growth for, for Devin Booker necessarily. I think there is a little bit. But more so just, you know, the, the difference between Chris Paul and Ricky Rubio is very clear in terms of Chris Paul can Chris Paul can hit a pull up shot and Ricky Rubio can't. And that's really kind of the the beginning and the end of the discussion, I think. So I think staggering those two guys is, is really going to be what we see a lot more of. And look, maybe jumping ahead of myself here, I think this team has one very obvious Achilles heel that we can kind of get into later in the podcast. But assuming full health. And assuming you can have as many lineup combinations as possible, where you get to either have Point Book or Chris Paul um, leading the show with kind of a bunch of complementary role players, I, I see no reason why they can't be just like a top, top offense overall. Like, I think that's going to be a very, very effective strategy. But as for Booker, I, I think he's going to be kind of in, in the same sort of realm that he was last year. Some increased off-ball responsibilities, but not necessarily dominating his game in any way. I think the additions of Etwan Moore and Langston Galloway, instead of trying to find a point guard, probably point to them planning on staggering the minutes a little bit too. Because, you know, as good as Cameron Payne was in the bubble, he was out of the NBA before the bubble. So I expect that they're planning on staggering the minutes a lot too. And I think Devin Booker's usage rate went up in the bubble. And I think they found something uh, specific there with him on the ball a little bit more. So I think trying to stagger the minutes a little bit more could be better going forward. It's going to be interesting, though, because it's something that we recorded earlier today for our podcast. It's something that we talked about, too, and there's a little uncertainty on how they're going to handle that and how it's going to look on the court. It's actually kind of hard to predict 
with these two guys because, uh, you know, something we talked about, and I'd like to hear your thought, Dan, who, who of these guys are better? <laughs> you know, Chris Paul last season, you could point at and you could say Chris Paul was better than Devin Booker. And then a lot of ways you can say Devin Booker will be better than Chris Paul this season because Chris Paul's just getting older. But there's like an element of which of these players is going to be the better player overall. So on the court, who is going to have the ball in their hands more? What's the most effective way to use them? I wonder what how you feel about that, Dan. I think at least in the interim, unless we see a drop-off from Chris Paul, I, I think the offense is probably better in his hands just because he's going to be the better playmaker for now. Um, and just because like what Devin Booker can do, it's not even just his catch and shoots, but he can cut really well. And like Chris Paul, just looking at his size and like at his age, like he's not going to do a lot of damage in those situations. So I think when they're playing together, it would be more important for him to have the ball again, unless there's like a drop-off there. And there's still like even if you give Devin Booker like a line share control of the offense, maybe there's still um, a, a chance that Chris Paul's better overall just because we know what he's going to do on defense. But as of right now, between the two, while Devin Booker has done such a better job as a passer, and while he's lacked like functional shooting and proven shooting around him a lot of the time, I still do feel like in general, Chris Paul is going to be the better option to uplift the offense. And so maybe it's even more important to stagger those minutes um sort of heavily so he can get run with a lot of like the other second unit guys and yeah Yeah. you want them to start together and you definitely want them to close together but i'm just wondering if uh and you guys already pointed it out because of the guards that they signed i'm just wondering if they plan on like really like staggering i'm trying to think of like the mike d'antoni level where like he separates his guys and so yeah um, i'm wondering if it could be like that type of situation even though their games um, as long as they don't have a problem playing off one another because of what both can do off the ball, it feels like they fit together seamlessly. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And I think it'll be really interesting going forward. But, you know, it wouldn't surprise me as well if if Monty Williams just has a lot of confidence in Cameron Payne. Uh, you know, they actually really <laughs> seem to like him in the bubble. And I, I think at the very least, I think the beginning of the season, Cameron Payne is going to get some backup point guard minutes maybe without both of those guys on the floor just to see how yeah. it would work because if he can continue to improve where he was at and, and it's unsustainable he shot over 50 percent from three in the bubble but if he can still be like relatively good if he can be like 90 percent of what he was in the bubble then you can get away with that a little bit and then just kind of kill teams when both chris paul and devin booker share the floor together so i think we'll see and it will probably change throughout the season what their plans are yeah, that right there, those minutes of, of Cameron Payne by himself, that's the Achilles heel I was talking about. That's that's the thing it that sounds scary. <laughs> it yeah. is. It is. And 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 you know, Cam did so well in the bubble. He deserved to be brought back. Uh, but yeah, the, the role that they're giving him, that's the that's the one thing for this team. And and I know you're gonna ask about the guard rotation later. It's just they have so many backup guards who are competent, but actual self creation. Um, is a premium in this league and and you know getting Chris Paul goes a long way towards adding that but if either Chris Paul or Devin Booker misses a long stretch of games you really have to look hard at this roster to find another guy who can who can kind of create for himself or others well so let's even just jump to that so Cameron Payne I'm guessing is going to be the and you guys talked about this on uh one of your two previous pods, you did a mailbag and you said that you would prefer like if it's like between seven and 10 minutes of just that's the limit of no Chris Paul and no Devin Booker at the same time. And so in those minutes, like it's I would and I think Cameron Payne is probably the best offensive steward of the four options that yeah. they have. Um, so those minutes, he's probably just then the first guard off the bench for them. Is that what you envision? 
I think so. Uh, I think just his ability to get into the teeth of the defense is better than any of the other guys. For as much as I love Javon Carter, he's not really good with the ball on his hands as far as like creating and penetrating. Uh, Cameron Payne is still pretty good at that. And I think if you can match Cameron Payne with a guy like Dario Saric, who's pretty good at creating for others, you can get away with it a little bit more, assuming no Chris Paul and no Devin Booker uh, on the floor. If you're staggering, I think Langston Galloway jumps to the top of that list because Langston Galloway fits really well with both Chris Paul and Devin Booker. But any minutes without both of those two, I think the lead guard at this point has to be Cameron Payne. And it should be said, Monty likes Cameron Payne a lot. He he's some he's somebody that he's worked with in the past. He was on the OKC coaching staff when Cameron Payne was there. They seem to have a good relationship. So you know, as close as he was to sort of retiring, if you will, forcibly retiring, just not getting put onto a roster, he seems to have a good relationship with his coach. So we'll see if that trust sort of translates into the next season. Once they're expected to be good. I'm I'm glad you brought up Dario Saric there, though, because I do think we need to just quickly say, like, if there was a time to buy Dario Saric stock, I think now is the time to do it because he's going to be given an opportunity to be that guy off the second unit. Um, this year, especially if campaign struggles early on. We saw in the bubble, Dario averaged something like, and again, small small sample size, but he averaged something like 15 points, seven rebounds, three assists per game. He played his best basketball all season long in Phoenix, and and honestly, probably his best basketball since that one year in Philly, his sophomore season. Um, and, you know, it, there seemed to be a time in his career where he was struggling with the idea of not being a starter, but but now that he seems to have bought into it and he seems to have additionally bought into this idea of even being a five in order to sustain his career in the modern era, like we, uh, when, when reporters talked to Dario last week at Media Week, he was just kind of reminiscing about the bubble, saying how awesome it was to play this free-flowing basketball where it just felt like they were going up the court and just just making plays and just, you know, everyone was touching the ball and it felt like everyone had an opportunity to make a meaningful decision with the basketball in their hands. So, you know, I think putting him in those sorts of situations in the second unit is really going to be beneficial to the entire team. And, you know, he's not going to play a ton of minutes. He's not going to be like a 30, 35 minute per game guy. But if he plays 22, 25 minutes, like he has sixth man of the year potential maybe like if if he puts up those sorts of bubble stats um over a long period of time and really becomes the uh play initiator off that bench and so he's then and this is um this is great that we're like jumping to what i was already going to ask is he then the the primary backup five now and it seems like that would be the best way to go after he played with the bubble and also you know me being biased i do not like the jalen smith pick in general (laughs) um whether you want to play him at the four or the five, so it's like, and you ha- you have Damian Jones, but like I don't really know what that means, um, unless you think that yeah. Chris Paul is really going to uplift him. So if Saric is going to give you like some more shot creation, um, and he played well with the five at the bubble, is a, am, am I reading this as like, oh, Dario Saric is the yeah. backup five in Phoenix now? He he definitely should be, and I definitely think it's trending towards that way based on what we saw in the bubble. I can't issue any guarantees. I thought it was interesting. We actually just discovered this yesterday. Mike and I didn't realize the Suns gave Damian Jones a two-year guaranteed contract. At first, I thought it was just a one-year vet min. So I don't know if that means something about, oh, they actually intend to play this guy, Uh, which for the record, I, I don't think would be a travesty. I think, you know, if there's one thing Dario doesn't provide off the bench, it's he's not going to protect the rim. So if you w- just want a guy to you know pick up his six fouls and go out there, protect the rim, catch lobs, either Damian Jones or Jalen Smith makes a lot of sense. And I do think those guys are going to soak up some minutes at the five. But 
in terms of is Dario Sarge more of a power forward or is he more of a center at this point in his career? I honestly think he's going to log more minutes at center overall yeah. than he does a power forward this year. I, I think like, you know, most websites, if you go to ESPN or basketball reference right now, they're going to call Dario Sarge a power forward. But those who really know, uh, know that he's basically a center at this point. Yeah, this is my soap. You set up my soapbox pretty nicely there, Dan, because I am <laughs> everything that Dario Saric is good at is magnified by him playing the five. And then it, it gets a little worse if you play him at the four. Uh, his ability to shoot, he's a, he's a shooter. He's not a great shooter, but he's a great shooter if you play him at center. Like he's one of the better shooters who plays at center. If you put him at power forward, uh, what he what he brings as far as shooting goes down a little bit. But also, defensively, he's not super quick laterally. It's almost better that he's guarding bigger guys. He's actually very strong, and that means offensively and defensively. Underrated post game. He's a guy who can push people around, especially off the bench uh, as a center. But also, something he really loves to do is pump fake and drive and get into the teeth of the defense and if there's another guy clogging the spacing for someone like him who's not very fast, it makes it a little harder to take advantage of some of his playmaking. And, you know, for as much as you dislike the Jalen Smith pick, and understandably so as it's considered a reach, how many big men can shoot off of movement like Jalen Smith coming out of the draft? I think that's one of the reasons they were comfortable picking him. He can still play next to Dario Saric if that's something that they plan on on doing. So... Everything that he's good at is better at the center position. And I'm not super worried about any sort of traditional style rim protection. I think he's a smart defender, but what he brings offensively at the center position will make up for whatever he lacks defensively at that center position. I just think he is a backup center. That's the best version of him. It's funny that's the case now because if you go back like maybe let's say a half decade or seven years, like he would have been considered this wild mismatch mismatch at the four spot. And now we've like reached a point um, yeah. where the game is so dynamic that it's someone like Dario Sarge who seems like he's made for the fours. Like, no, you know what? He should be the backup five. And one thing I stumbled across too when I was like doing prep work for this pod was that he was averaging 1.05 points per post-up possession last year and yeah. shot fifty over 54% on post-up. So he's, he's thick. He's like low-key thick. <laughs> yeah, so like if you're if like that's something to work with the second unit, obviously you don't necessarily want it to be a crutch, but um, if you don't have that, uh, I don't want to say traditional point guard, but let's say like more of a floor general, someone who could really direct people, like having Dario Sarge as that bailout option makes so much sense. And look, because you know my thoughts on Jalen Smith, like I'm gonna, I absolutely believe that he should be the backup five. And those lineups, like yeah, over the course of the season when they were sprinkled in with like the larger sample size, they were they were fine, but liners with Dario Sarge at the five in the bubble were just absolutely murderous. And so like why wouldn't yeah. you just try and your second unit overall, I would say is just better because now I'm assuming and this will be something we touch upon later, but it's like you're adding Cam Johnson to it basically. Yeah. So it just seems like a no-brainer to continue riding that model. Although I will say something I didn't consider is seeing him and uh Smith playing together. That's something that would be interesting. I think uh, absolute sieve defensively together, but uh, <laughs> you know, the, the one thing that I'll give Jalen Smith is that, and I mentioned this in the uh, chat with you guys is like his shooting improvement at Maryland seemed real because as Mike said, like it's functional shooting. Like it wasn't just, he was taking a while to uncork these, like, you know, he had a defender wasn't within 12 feet and he was hitting wide open threes. Like it was real and he was doing stuff. I just don't with eight and already on the roster. And I think again, I was also, I grew I liked the idea of Tyrese Halliburton, like having uh, Chris Paul as a mentor. And I also just thought uh, 
with Devin Vassell on the board. I uh, loved. That's who I was going to mention. Could you have imagined? Like, I don't know how often they would have got to this lineup, but like Mikael Bridges, um, Crowder, and Vassell on the court at the same time. I know. Yeah, I know. Damn, I imagined a lot. <laughs> yeah, but we bought, we bought into it. We 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 researched Jalen Smith and we bought into it. I don't know if I'm fully bought into it yet. Yeah, okay, I, I, bought, I will. I say, can I, Sam justify I, it for me then, please? Yeah. No, I can't. Well, here's the truth. Dan, I can't justify it because I know what you want. I understand it's a reach. And for this to be a positive value pick at, at, at number 10 overall, we both know he needs to play meaningful minutes at the four. After having watched him, I can't, I just, I can't promise you that. I do think his skills at the five are going to be pretty self-evident from the jump. Like just that, uh, the, the rim protection is good. The functional shooting, as you mentioned, if there's anything this team has in spades now, um, between Devin Booker, Cam Johnson, Langston Galloway, Etuan Moore, Jalen Smith, they've got functional shooting at basically every position. And that's one of the things I'm most excited about. Um, he's also a really good rebounder. Like he's a really good rebounder, Jalen Smith. Um, so I think all of those skills are just going to be very evident. He, he's going to be able to provide meaningful backup five minutes um, as a rookie if he needs to. And I don't even think he will have to because of Dario Saric. Um, the question is, of course, if he never can play the four, but does succeed as a five, let's say he does become like, and this is just, this is a, a random comparison that we've thrown out a couple times. I'm not saying he's going to be like this guy, but let's say he becomes a Miles Turner type eventually one day. Like, let's say that's his ceiling. And he's a starting caliber five who protects the rim and hits three-point shots. Um, then it, it brings up the interesting question of, well, what do you do with DeAndre Ayton? If, if those guys can't really coexist, I, eventually you come to the point where you have to choose one over the other. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I'm I'm excited to see him play at the four. Uh, a little bit, a little bit nervous about it. Um, overall, though, I I just I guess my my bottom line here is I am excited to be going into a season of Phoenix Suns basketball where the Suns drafted in the lottery, and yet I don't really give a damn about their lottery pick because he just doesn't he just doesn't need to play. He doesn't need to play in order for this to be a good team. And and I can't even remember the last time that that was the case for this team that their lottery pick didn't even, you know, he could play six or eight minutes per game and this would still be a good team regardless. So that's not exactly justifying it for you. It's not giving the best pitch for James Jones's strategy, but hey, well, I will say James Jones, uh, be, it marches to his own drum and yeah. uh, for him. Yeah, Dan, how did you feel about Cameron Johnson? I think that's well, how a lot of Suns fans are looking at this. Right. That's a better at first, At first, we all, we all looked at Cameron Johnson and said, what? And then so did by Kobe the end of the White, bubble, it's like his friend. Oh, he should have like, gone higher. Maybe. I will say, I will say, Dan, if like Suns fans can call me out, and they have before, as they should. If you go back to our emergency podcast that for the timeline, when we took Cam Johnson, I basically threw a fit right on our podcast, <laughs> and, and you know, I've I've since known not to do that and not to assign too harsh of a judgment to any 19, 20, 21 year old and Cam Johnson, 33 year old, you know, any of their cases. <laughs> um, but so, you know, I, I'll, I'll wait and see how he plays first. Um, but I definitely think overall the shooting, the rebounding, uh, the rim protection, uh, these are functional NBA skills that may not necessarily lend themselves to a high ceiling, but absolutely have the potential to impact winning basketball on a rookie contract. See, my thing is, I, so James Johnson, uh, James Jones, excuse me, has earned the benefit of the, James Johnson has earned the benefit of the doubt of nothing. Um, James Jones has <laughs> earned the benefit of the doubt. Um, but if you're going to take a swing, and I, this is my argument, like you sort of laid it out for me, is that this rookie didn't need to play like big minutes. And so that's, I'm not going to throw a fit because yeah, that's part of the reason. But if you're going to take a big swing, I would rather swing at a player that has the potential to turn into something more. And I think 
if Smith can get by at the four, like, okay, that's great, but his value is forever capped if you're invested in DeAndre Ayton, as you should be, and I have questions about him coming yeah. up. Mm-hmm. And so I would Are rather... They? Well, if they're not, like, I guess I that's just... I'm not reading the situation correctly then. So if, well, if that... now now you're really now you're really starting to read the tea leaves, Dan. And this is where the conversation <laughs> Look, if you if you want to use DeAndre Ayton as a trade chip to try and get like a third star now, um, fine. But I would rather if this is the team and specifically because it was like this two year window, which is why I liked Halliburton, is like, why not have Chris Paul like you know, the Suns are obviously hoping this window is longer than that, but with Chris Paul specifically, he's under contract for two years. I don't know that you could expect him to play at an all-star level much longer than that. And so having Halliburton like just there, and because he didn't need to play, some people wonder if he can be a lead initiator, but just having Chris Paul and even Devin Booker in front of him, yeah. I thought felt like such an obvious fit because you didn't need to rely on him. I do think Vassell was more of the like, um, you know, it's fine that we don't need him to play, but if you want him to, he seems like polished and maybe there's more ball yeah. skills there than we thought. So you don't have to draft for fit. I just, I don't see the, if this is a swing, I don't see the super high upside with Jalen Smith. And if you're not invested in Aiton, I guess that helps a bit, but I'm just looking at him defensively, like the rim protection should be fine. Um, and maybe I should look at what Aiton, um, has done over his, like the improvement from year one to year two and his defense in space. But like the research that I did for Jalen Smith before this pod was just like, that dude is going to get destroyed in basically every single pick and roll where he's not allowed to camp out, like just underneath the rim. Right. Right. Yeah. I, I think that you're probably right about that, but I do want to ask Dan, do you buy into the reports about Halliburton asking teams not to draft him? And maybe that shouldn't matter for the record. I understand the perspective that you, you don't have to listen to these players, but there were reports that Halliburton was asking teams not to draft him to try and force his way to Sacramento, which by the way, hilarious to me, uh, but you know, sort of, I a think Jeremy Grant taking equal money to be a member of the Detroit Pistons exactly. instead of the Nuggets. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> do, do you buy into that or, or do, have you heard anything about that? Um, I definitely buy into that. He was asking it, uh, at the same time, I, I can't imagine a player asking it with the Kings in mind is like my whole point. <laughs> and so like, if the team he actually wanted to go to was the Kings, you take him anyway, because it's like, Hey, we just, yeah. you're not the Kings. Like watch them be a dumpster fire from all the way over here. Um, and I think if he understood, and for, so from what I understand, um, in Sacramento is that there's going to be like a ton of, I think more turnovers to come for them. And so maybe he was looking at it as, Oh, I know that they're going to move buddy healed or that he's going to come off the bench anyway. And so I'll be starting alongside De'Aaron Fox. You're not going to have that opportunity in Phoenix. So I totally get that. I I would have taken him anyway. And so like, I'll never, like if I was Philly, um, when KP didn't want to go there, they were already collecting bigs. I would have taken him anyway, instead of Jaleel for whatever that draft ended up being. So, uh, I, I totally get that. I just, I, Sam's point makes sense. And again, if you're doubting, like maybe how committed the, the Suns are to Aiton or if they just want to keep well, their options open at the five, I just don't see Smith like being a, a high enough upside swing to justify the swing itself. Because First of all, I agree with you. Uh, I think, you know, you were talking about his ability to defend at space. He's not the athlete DeAndre Ayton is by any stretch of the imagination. And because Suns fans are listening to this, I feel the need to emphasize for the millionth time. I'm not saying I want the Suns to trade DeAndre Ayton. I just think if there's anything we know about James Jones at this point, it's that he moves in silence. <laughs> he's, he's just he's one of those GMs like he is not afraid of going uh, in the complete opposite direction of the popular opinion. And he has shown absolutely no loyalty 
to any Ryan McDonough-era player who was a leftover on the roster outside of Devin Booker, who he obviously believes in Devin Booker as a superstar player. But DeAndre Ayton was not his pick. And I think DeAndre Ayton is a very talented prospect. I think he has a high ceiling, could be an all-NBA center for many years to come. But if James Jones feels that moving him is what can get him the third star that that will build out his vision, and Jalen Smith can be the starting center instead, it would not, knowing what we know about James Jones now, it would not surprise me one bit. That's all I'll say. It's not to say DeAndre Ayton's a bad player. It's just James Jones does whatever the hell he wants, and he does not care what we have to say about it. And I, I do think that's probably something I didn't consider because Aiton's actually good. This is normally like with like fringe guys where you don't know that these regimes, these front office regimes, like they want their own guys in there. Um, and we, so I guess that's something I didn't consider enough, but I just, I don't know. I'm, I'm still just uneasy about the pick and like, I'm wrong about the draft all the time. So maybe I just co-signed like a really strong career for Jalen Smith. Congratulations to him. But, uh, just the options on the board, it seemed like there were too many no brainers, but is like, is that the feel that you guys are getting then? Like, is this, and and I'm not saying that we need to infer that it means anything other than they really like Jalen Smith, but do you think that this type of pick, um, does leave it into question of how committed they are to Aiton, or maybe they're just worried that he doesn't want to be, you know, they've set the table now where he's never going to be higher than the third option with Paul and, and Booker there. And so is there really anything potentially more underlying there? Personally, for me, it has nothing to do with the pick. Um, I mean, maybe you can add that onto a pile of evidence. But to me, as soon as Chris Paul was willing to play for the Suns, I think he's doing that for Devin Booker specifically. And then the understanding of James Jones saying, if there's something if there's something to be done, a move to be made that could bring us closer to a championship, I am willing to make it. I don't know that Chris Paul would be willing to play for the Suns without some sort of understanding there. And, you know, it's it's a it's a tough conversation, I think, like Sam pointed out that Suns fans are listening. Um, it's a tough conversation there because a lot of them are attached to, to DeAndre Ayton. And I'm not even necessarily specifically talking about DeAndre Ayton. I just mean when Chris Paul agrees to come to the Suns, he's looking at it as me and a offensive superstar in Devin Booker. Can I find a path to a championship with the assets that they now have? And exactly. I... I just very much doubt that Chris Paul would be willing to play for a team like the Suns without some sort of understanding from James Jones that if there's a move to be made, they, they'd be willing to do it. So the, the pick, way you could you could point at the pick as more evidence of that. But I don't I think I thought that before they even made that pick. I know we're a couple of years into DeAndre Ayton's career now, so it's not a perfect comparison. But the way I've heard you put it before, Mike, is LeBron didn't go back to Cleveland to play with Andrew Wiggins. Yeah. So. Yeah. Whatever puts Chris Paul in position to win a championship, again, neither of us is saying DeAndre Ayton's a bad player. We haven't even really had an extended conversation here about him on this pod. I mean, I think he's a terrific, terrific player and, and really makes the team stronger in their pursuit of, of home court advantage this year. But James Jones does what he wants. And if he sees a better deal out there, I wouldn't doubt it for a second. Whew, that You guys gave me something to think about that I did not consider. Uh, he instantly becomes, if they were willing to move him, uh, like a, a super valuable trade asset. Um, I don't necessarily know the player that like you would deal him for, um, because I don't know that Bradley Beal makes too much sense for this team, even though Aiton makes a ton of sense for the Wizards if they really wanted to rebuild at some point this season. But there's always, I guess, another star out there. Um, yeah, you never know. Yeah. Uh, but with Aiton, so let's assume that he stays. Um, what does his fit look like next to now? Uh, maybe it helps that they will be staggering CB3 and Booker so much, so he's playing with only one of them a bunch. But what does his role look like next to the two of them? Is it sort of a matter of we're just going to see him exchanging the post-ups, a lot of the post-ups he had last year for just more yes. you know, dives? 
<laughs> I hope so. I really hope so. I think I talked about it on the podcast we just recorded too. DeAndre and as your second best player has a specific kind of ceiling. DeAndre and as your third best player has a much higher ceiling. I think if you if you look at that team from that perspective with two genuine offensive superstars on the team, DeAndre Ayton has to understand that his role is now to fit with those two offensive superstars. And that means rolling to the rim hard and a lot. That does not mean demanding the ball in the block. And I will say, to DeAndre Ayton's credit, sometimes you looked at him last season and you thought, just ask for the ball. Demand the ball you know, in that post and, and go to work. And he doesn't do that. And last season, you might look at that as a negative. This season, with Chris Paul on the team, you might actually look at that as something that is good for this team because now you just have to get him in the right mindset to continually roll to the rim. And I think it's particularly important to understand that it does not matter if he gets the ball on that roll. He will be a decoy commonly for shooters, for the mid-range shots, for two of the best mid-range shooters in the NBA are now on this team in Chris Paul and Devin Booker. And now that there's legitimate shooting on the outside that they can put, uh, he has to understand that it's not always necessarily going to be for him getting the ball. We've, we've started to call it on our podcast a roll assist, rolling to the basket to get other guys open, and then those shots can go in. And so I, I really do hope – I don't like – first of all, I don't like the mid-range shots. that Those need to go, and I think they <laughs> probably will because there's another guy that's going to eat up that mid-range space now, the best mid-range shooter in the NBA probably, and Chris Paul. And then uh, I'm not a huge fan of the post-ups other than mismatches. I think it's fine if he can post up on mismatches and switches. But I'd like to eliminate those uh, almost entirely in favor of just sort of being one of the better role men in, in the league and, you know, emphasizing his defensive role. That's the important part at this point. Absolutely. Defense is going to be key for DeAndre offensively. Look, the honest truth is that DeAndre Ayton is really only great at one thing on offense right now, and that's being a lob threat. He's got a ton of gravity, and if you're just trying to build the best possible team for next year and aren't as worried about developing him into a high-level all-NBA first-team center, then you basically treat him as Rudy Gobert on offense next year and just say catch lobs. And he could be very, very good at it, and he might only average 16 or 17 points per game, but it might be the best thing to make the Suns the best offensive team next year. Defensively, um, this is what, I mean, CP3 is going to be on his ass all season long about defense. And like, and the thing is, DeAndre Ayton is a good defender now. Like people didn't see it in year one and that was fair because he was a bad defender. I'm very confident now in saying he's a good defender. He just has these small tweaks to make to become uh, a great defender. And I'll give you one example. Here's one stat that surprised me that I actually sought out about Ayton the other day. DeAndre Ayton led the league among all centers in contested three-point shots per game. He contested 5.1 threes per game last season. Nobody else even came close. Anthony Davis was actually second uh, at 4.2, a full three less per game. And the reason that's important is because year one, DeAndre Ayton was basically a drop defender. I mean, he would switch sometimes on some select matchups, but but he was mostly in drop coverage schemes. And even there, he struggled as a rim protector. Year two, he basically doubled his block rate. We saw him make huge strides um, as a drop protect, um, as a drop defender. And it, even despite that, though, Monty Williams grew much, much more comfortable in deploying him in traps and playing him up high and switching him onto guards and having him contest just a larger amount of threes per game. So he's like, this is the reason he was drafted. 
is to be this kind of malleable defender who can see different pick and roll coverages and play very well in space. And he's very, very good at all of that stuff. To take the next step and become like an all defense level player or a defensive player of the year contender, it's just about off ball engagement. Um, communication, like shoring up his reaction time to the point of rotating to the right place before a breakdown can even happen. Um, and so hopefully, you know, I think Aaron Baines was a great veteran to have behind him last year because hopefully he learned something from Aaron Baines about just communicating and, and, and calling out sets and coverages. Mm-hmm. And I think Chris Paul is going to be that veteran who's really going to be on his case this year about we know you're athletic. We know you can move and keep up with other guys and be a great on-ball defender, but we need you to anchor this entire system. And that means really looking out for the rest of your teammates as well from that position. It's probably important to have that type of voice, even though I know Chris Paul has been considered grading in the past, just because I don't know if Aiton would be this type of player, but like defensive effort and engagement will suffer if his offensive role is at all. Like if he's just being used more as a decoy and the touches are down and, you know, are they even going to be willing to try and get him his own post touches, like maybe that's something you can go to in the no booker, no CP3 minutes, though, again, I wouldn't recommend it. Mm. Um, so having Chris Paul there, I mean, it's going to be good for everybody, but if you're actually, there's a chance that Aiton's role might be like the largest impacted on offense of all these guys, it's probably important to have a voice like that on the defensive end. Yeah, and, and it should be said that like the Suns have two guys that can get him the ball on the rolls still. Like I do think he can get close to 20 points a game just from being that role man, I, I don't like I wasn't a huge fan of the post ups anyway. And if you if you throw in a combination of the willingness to shoot the three pointer when it's wide open and uh, two guys who are like some of the better guys in the league at, at getting the ball to guys on the roll, I still think he could have a pretty strong offensive impact on this team without, you know, 75% of his, I just went over this stat too, 75% of his shots basically were assisted last season, and that is fine if it stays that way this season. If you factor in some of those unassisted shots as offensive putbacks, uh, right. rebounds into putbacks, then, you know, it's fine. If if that stays the same, I still think he, he can get more, uh, you know, more shots on the rim with, with the shooting and with the guys that are uh, on the team now. For me, offensively, he needs to get better at just, being willing to take contact and getting those free throw attempts up because it's kind of pathetic for what he is <laughs> as far as if it really is, he needs to get no, to, you're the, right. to the free throw line more. Uh, and if he can do that, that'll increase his, his points pretty easily too. Cause he's a good, a legitimately good free throw shooter. But the, the Suns last year, by the way, best free throw shooting team of all time. Kind awesome. of an interesting stat. <laughs> Did not know that. Yeah. yeah, it's a very, very underutilized stat that like Suns Twitter has latched onto. I did a whole <laughs> in the bubble because they were they had to gain on other teams in the bubble, which I think is interesting because they shot like 90 percent from the free throw line in the bubble, probably because there were no fans. Um, and, and so they had to catch up to the other teams. And I did a whole free throw watch on Twitter, but never really <laughs> caught on nationally. Uh, this is so we've already established that clearly DeAndre Ayton's not finishing the season in Phoenix, so we can we can move on from that. <laughs> oh, no. uh, yeah. We're gonna lose all our followers on Twitter now. <laughs> um, this is my contractually obligated question. I'll throw it to to Sam just because Mike and I already talked about this. Um, well, I guess not this specifically, but does CP3's arrival like ensure that Mikael Bridges now just gets it together more on offense because it's like the the shots he's going to have, like he's not going to be able to pass them up, and the space that he's going to be able to attack. Now, like off the catch, like it's going, I would assume it's just going to be so much more wide open that I'm wondering if Chris Paul benefits, just having both Chris Paul and Devin Booker there benefits him from the standpoint of 
hey, we kind of saw him play really well towards the end of the year on offense, but this ensures that he'll do it more consistently. Uh, look, Ricky Rubio was already a great partner for Mikhail Bridges to have, so I, I definitely don't, I don't want to overstate it because it's not like the Suns upgrading from Isaiah Kanan to Ricky Rubio, uh, which is what they did last year, you know. The, but there is still an upgrade there just from Chris Paul with his gravity in the mid-range sucking in. Mikhail Bridges was one of the best cutters in the NBA last season, and this is just a super smart role player who does not take dumb mid-range shots. Um, and what we saw from him last year was he fills the lane properly in transition. He makes smart cuts. And I think he's going to continue to benefit from that in a system that revolves around Chris Paul and Devin Booker. Now, does that lend itself to, you know, 15, 16 points per game? I don't really think it does. Um, but I definitely think he can go up from he averaged nine points per game last year. I think he can get up to the 11, 12 maybe 13 range this year, um, just as a super smart, savvy role player who basically only takes um, smart shots. And and hopefully the other thing we're hoping for, obviously, is he kind of finally fixed his three-point jumper there at the end of last year. It was a little bit less wonky um, to the point where he shot 36%. Um, he had a couple of pull-ups, too, overall. that caught me off guard. Yeah. yeah, he did. And look, it's it's Mikhail Bridges. You know, like, we're not—he's just a, an amazing defensive player. Anything you can get on offense is basically a bonus. So we're not expecting, like, some pull-up maestro to, to come out of him all of a sudden, as awesome as that would be. But, like, if he can just get up to 38 39%, um, you know, not even necessarily his Villanova percentages, but just a solid, like, close to 40%, become a true 3-and-D role player in every essence of the word— um, who, who also like is just a very good cutter, as I said. I mean, that's just it's a Swiss Army knife, and for that type of player to be essentially the fourth or fifth option in your starting lineup um, is what makes this team such a dangerous offense in the first place. It's the fact that you know Chris Paul, Devin Booker are going to be the engine. Everyone else is kind of revolving around them, and and maybe no one else even averages more than twelve points per game. But any of those guys, they all have that one bankable skill. That means that maybe they get to 20, 25 points on any given night. You know, like Cam Johnson, maybe one night he hits six threes. Mikhail Bridges, one night he cuts his way to 20 points. And and there's just a lot of guys on this team now where even if they're not necessarily creating a ton of offense for themselves off the dribble, when you put them around Chris Paul and Devin Booker, that's what makes the offense so frightening, I think. Yeah. It sounds like a Suns team of old, actually, when you describe it like that, Sam. Uh, but Mikhail Bridges, actually, I think he led the team in true shooting percentage uh, last year in a small role. And I think that role could increase slightly. And I think his true shooting percentage could still go up. It should be said that his three-point shot getting better at the end of the season was not a coincidence. There was a material change in his form that allowed it to get better. Something happened at the beginning of, uh, or in the middle of his rookie season, where he developed a hitch. And through coaching and through film watching, he was able to eliminate that. So if that's gone, I think that the improvement in his shooting could be sustainable in a way that it wouldn't necessarily be if it's just he got hot towards the end of the season. I think there was a legitimate change where he got back to his college form. And, uh, you know, that could make a big difference for him going forward. If he's like, if next season is just him on offense, maybe slightly higher volume, and he's playing like the way he did towards the end of this past year, um, I'll be very curious to see what extension talks look like for him because yeah. that's like a really good player. I did my predictions for all defense um, this year, and he's he's on there for me this season. I think this Whoa. is like the year that he gets Ooh. in there. So, Love um, to see it. if you I have, they need to win a lot of games though. 
They're good. I, like, I'm like, pay. maybe I'm too high on the sun. Maybe I've been talking to you guys too much, but I'm like, <laughs> I'm, I'm listening to you guys too much. But like, I'm super high on the Suns, and I, I a lot of it has to do. I like the moves that they made, Sands, uh, Jalen Smith, obviously, but I just don't think the rest of the West got a lot better, and so right. the doors like really open for them to be, yeah, uh, like ridiculously good. And Mikael Bridges specifically. Um, if he's not taking shots that are available to him, like that's also why you have CP three there because he'll come, he'll come running off the bench. If he's on the bench in those moments and smack him in the face. And so that'll <laughs> probably help Bridges's confidence. Maybe I should say a little bit too. Yeah. yeah. Let it fly. He needs to let it fly. And I think you're right too about, you know, the West. I also think the Suns are a team that's going to be the team of tryhards. There's not a bunch of veterans that have been to the playoffs 10 times and don't care about home court advantage. They're, they want to make a point. They want to make a statement this year, and they're going to keep that foot on the gas pedal as much as possible, with or without Chris Paul playing every game. I think they're just really going to push hard this season to get uh, to win as many games as possible. Whereas, like a team like the Lakers might not. Like, I don't know if they really care to. They don't a give a statement. shit about the regular season. They're, yeah, they're not going exactly. to care. <laughs> yeah. I so we've talked about like the concerns or potential concerns about how they handle backup five, and then obviously the concerns at backup point guard. Is there like any element of concern when you're looking at the secondary wing rotation? Um, unless you're just you know confident in Etwan Moore, or you think that Cam Johnson could play more, more three, um, is Abdel Nader going to get like actual minutes for this team? <laughs> for some, which I actually wouldn't have a problem with, but it does still feel like they right. might be like one reserve win- wing short at the moment. Yeah, I feel you. I mean, there was definitely a part. Look, they have one roster spot open. Actually, they still have one roster spot open because I've they labeled it the Tony Kobo. Snell spot. Um, if you guys care. For Tony Snell, that's interesting. Uh, I don't think he's. Well, um, I forgot where he was. Like until last night, he's in Atlanta. I think that's going to be like an eventual buyout situation. Huh. that's interesting. <laughs> I didn't consider that. I I don't know. Do you think Nader is an interesting one? I feel like Sam and I commonly forget that Nader's on the team, <laughs> just because he's so deep in that um, rotation. But I think when you have. Jay Crowder, you have Mikhail Bridges, and you have Cameron Johnson. You're starting with a pretty good wing rotation already. Uh, Etwan Moore is interesting. It's you know defensively, it falls off a lot after Mikhail Bridges and Jay, Crow- Jay Crowder, obviously. But you know, it, I guess a lot of it depends on whether or not Jalen Smith actually earns those minutes at the four or the five coming off the bench there. Because if he can play with Dario Saric. Then you have Cameron Johnson playing at the three a little bit, and it and it shores that up a little bit. But I think that's a fair thing to be a little bit worried about. An injury could make a big difference as far as how it looks. I do wonder, like we're just sort of we're all factoring Jay Crowder into the starting lineup mentally, um, but Monty Williams hasn't. Uh, I'm not really, I'm not really sure what that's going to be. I, I think it's really interesting. Um, it you know could it be Cameron Johnson? after what he did in the bubble. And I know that Chris Paul likes to play with players like Cameron Johnson who can shoot off movement from the top of the key. Uh, you know, I'm just really interested to see where that falls. I, I'd be surprised if Jay Crowder wasn't starting. I'll say that. But, you know, Monty Williams hasn't said that yet. So we're, we're still waiting to see. I'd be terrified to have him in, like, second units just because that probably increases the time where he's not playing with Booker or CP3. And he, like, fancies right. himself a creator at points and it never ends well. <laughs> So I'd yeah. be absolutely terrified if that happened. But I, I mean, that's, that's also fair to say. With regard to Nader, it's it's just like, I'm okay if he plays a few minutes just for the record. But man, it really does. It does make you think Devin Vassell would look really good in that spot right now, right? Just as See, like you're coming around. <laughs> no, I mean, it's it's not that I hate. 
it's not that I hate the Jalen Smith pick. It's just that I'm not a draft guy. Mike isn't a draft guy. Like we're the type of guys who who kind of show up late to the whole process. And Devin Vassell was one of one of the guys that I really locked in on pre-draft of just like this is a guy that I actually want. And uh and and you spend a couple months and several podcasts talking about a certain player and then he falls right into your lap and and you don't pick him. That's all it is. Yeah, I mean, look, this is the disclaimer. I'm in the same camp as you guys. Like, I don't cover these guys until they get to the NBA. So I get, like, shin deep in draft coverage when it rolls around. But Devin Vassell was someone um, one of my colleagues turned me on to early and just looking at, like, his defense. And then I think there's more ball skills there than people are giving him credit for. So he would have been a perfect fit. But, look, I don't need to – I won't continue crapping on the Jalen Smith pick. (laughs) If it helps – if Suns fans want to feel good about this, I crapped all over the Kawhi Leonard pick, like trade for the Spurs, um, and that seemed to turn out pretty well for them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean um, Devin Vassell on the Spurs now too. That's pretty good situation for him, I'd say. Oh, that all of a sudden the Spurs go from like never having wings to now they have all of them. It's uh, yeah. it's that's quite the heel to, uh, quite the about face for them. Uh, the, one of the questions I have: Will we see like any material differences in how the Suns play this year because of? CP3, the thing that I mentioned to you guys, like just I, I would assume they'll play a little bit slower, even though they like weren't that fast to begin with. But CP3 just even though he can do stuff or like help get you out in transition, he's the type of player with Devin Booker where you want to let him get into his own offense. And so to slow things down kind of makes sense. But also they have like these combination of units where CP3 might not be on the floor where it feels like they could play at a heart attack pace. So are they like yeah. going to be one of the better shapeshifters in the league this year? Do we just really not see a huge change in what they're doing? Will there be more threes taken? Because I would I would hazard, you know, 20th and three-point attempt rate is too low, even though you are yes. adding another guy with a great in-between game. Yeah, the, the three-point shooting, I, I could basically guarantee that uh, they're going to shoot more threes. Um, you know, we joked about it last time you and I talked in. James Jones likes shooters because he was one. And I think he just wants them to shoot more threes. It's just they didn't have guys that were fully capable of that, as many guys that were fully capable of it. They had shooters that could shoot them. But I think I think you're right. I think slowing down a little bit when Chris Paul's on the floor and shooting more threes are the biggest changes that I could see. I do think they're, you know, defensively, I think they're going to be a little bit more aggressive with Chris Paul. Like, the starting lineup, I know we're probably going to get to defense at some point in this conversation, but the starting lineup of... Chris Paul, Devin Booker, Mikhail Bridges, Jay Crowder, DeAndre Ayton. There's only one bad defender in that starting lineup, and there are multiple guys who can get on the other team's nerves in that starting lineup, which I just find pretty fascinating. But if we're speaking offensively, I think you're right. I think slowing down a little bit. But but to your point, like when Cameron Payne's on the floor, if Cameron Payne, Mikhail Bridges and Devin Booker are on the floor together, they should be running. Like they should be playing as fast as possible. It's mm-hmm. Cameron Payne has sort of an Ish Smith vibe to what he can do offensively with that team. And if that's something that they want to do, I hope they do that because Mikhail Bridge is super effective in transition. Um, Devin Booker, one of the best in the league in transition. No Kelly Oubre anymore, who was like one of our main transition threats. Um, but if Cameron Johnson wants to launch four threes a game in transition, I'm also okay with that. So, <laughs> like, like that, those are things that I think they could do. I don't know, Sam. What do you think? 
Yeah, no, I agree with you. Look, I think overall they are going to be slower. They are going to play a little bit more ISO just because it plays to the strengths of, of Paul and Booker, but they're not going to take away, I hope, too much from what made them so successful last year, which is playing that up-tempo, free-flowing system, um, slightly up-tempo, as Dan said, not like super up-tempo. Um, Dan, did, did you ask about Aiton's threes in that question? I already forgot. I didn't. Yeah, I didn't even get to it, but it was just, I was wondering if his three-point, I know he upped it a little bit towards the end of the season, but like, is he going to like, does he have to take threes now? Like, could he even like, right, be right. a pick and pop option for them maybe yeah yeah it's a really interesting question it's something i've thought about too and, and i think we discussed it just recently on our podcast like personally i want deandre Ayton. i love the stuff in the bubble i want deandre Ayton to build on his three-point volume but only to the point of keeping the defense honest with what they do this year like i think this is a team that has a lot of high quality shooters but isn't necessarily going to be a super high volume three-point shooting team maybe a little bit more than last year but but not in the top five or anything um, structurally with DeAndre Aiden, I think a four-out offense with one elite lob threat is going to be a lot more successful than a five-out offense where your five is shooting like 31, 32% from three, you know, like he's right. just, he's just a lot more valuable in the dunker position. So, you know, I hope he gets his feet wet with that, maybe takes one more attempt per game or, or, or something like that. But I don't think that increase specifically related to DeAndre is going to be super significant. Do you guys have any feel for you, um, and Mike kind of touched upon this, for where this team ends up defensively? Because I feel like they can cobble together some, and we're presuming they're starting five, like that should be the strongest defensive unit that they have, unless you know you're going to sub out um, Devin Booker and just throw Javon Carter in there. Like then that becomes like just a five-man terrorizing (laughs) unit. But overall, like do you think that this ends up being a better than average defensive team um yeah I, I feel like they're still going to be aggressive so maybe their foul rate doesn't get cut down a ton and uh it feels like maybe cp3 will help them be more disciplined when they're defending in transition uh but do you see that being much better this season or, or is there still going to be like a touch and go element or more painful elements on that end of the floor i started off this off season once things kind of shook out thinking that it would be closer to an average defensive team. But the more I've thought about it, the more I've talked myself into uh, it it being a better than average defensive team, which I think starts to raise the overall ceiling of this team if you're talking about where they fall in terms of the entire league. But look, you you talked about him. You know I love him. Mikhail Bridges could be one of the best wing defenders in the NBA this season. That makes a huge difference. Chris Paul is better than Ricky Rubio for as good as Ricky Rubio was defensively we're going to factor in an improvement for DeAndre Ayton. and then of course you know for as good as Kelly Oubre was at a lot of things for the Suns he actually was an overrated defender he's never really had a positive uh, defensive BPM for example it's I just not Kelly Oubre has gone for one month and Suns fans just proceed to <laughs> stomp on his dead body <laughs> it's, it's funny because Kelly Oubre brought such a cultural significance to the Suns that like people were obsessed with him to the point where I feel like a lot of Suns fans who actually weren't super into kind of what he's all about, at least on the court, were afraid to air any of their grievances. And now that he's finally gone, they're they're all there with him. He should still hey, be allowed to be on the payroll as like a brand ambassador for them. <laughs> he can play for another team, but should still have to be like a Suns yeah. brand ambassador. Yeah, I like that. Like the Drake role. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, I think, you know, I've been consistent on that. I just think he's been an overrated defender just in general. Whereas Jay Crowder... Uh, maybe, you know, maybe even a little overrated too with Jay Crowder, but also much, much better than Kelly Oubre. Uh, but it it gets a little rocky when you go from that starting lineup to the bench. Outside of Javon Carter, there's no excellent 
defenders. It's mostly filled with, you know, guys who are going to launch a lot of threes. And, and you know, Dario Saric, we're talking about him at the five, not perfectly suited for that, but not terrible either. So I sort of talked myself into there's potential there for them to crack that top 10 defense. And, and if they do that, they could be a really excellent team. It's just about, I think, staying healthy uh, for a lot of these guys because Mikhail Bridges, who has not missed a game yet in the NBA, has to continue to do that. Uh, Jay Crowder, you know, is is one of the older guys. And then, of course, Chris Paul. But if we're factoring in, you know, we're talking about last season, they sort of at below average, slightly below average defense. You know, 25 games missed with DeAndre and made a big difference there. If he right. played those 25 games, I think that number would look closer to average. Now we're factoring in a couple other great defenders on that team. I think they could get better than that. The it's, it feels like the way they cobble together their like non-starting lineup units will determine like kind of where they land defensively. And I think inherently, like while Sarge at the five is the smartest move, that's probably just where you're taking like the biggest gamble because um, he might be fine there. But how do you flesh out like those units around him? Even if you're you know mixing and matching starters and reserves. Uh, while I was looking up stuff for this pod, though, I did notice that it's a small-ish sample size, 500-plus possessions. They were in the 56th percentile of defensive efficiency for Sarge at the five units. Um, and it's an even smaller sample, but when Sarge was at the five with Javon Carter uh, on the court, yeah. they were they were in the 79th percentile of defensive efficiency. And their half-court defense was just off the charts in those minutes. So maybe there's a blueprint there, but I think that ultimately, if the starting lineup is what we think it is, or even if, you, even if it's Cam Johnson instead of Jay Crowder, I think it ends up being like the reserves that determine the, the tenor of the defense when we're looking at where they rank uh, yeah. amongst other teams. The So this is a boring question, I feel like, um, which is why I have a more creative follow-up. Like, is the closing unit their most, or what should be their most common closing unit? Because it will be, I'm sure, matchup-based to some extent. Is it just what we think the starting lineup is going to be? It's uh, CP3, Booker, <laughs> Jay Crowder, Mikael Bridges, and Aiton, or do you see like any changes being made there? Well, I think that's a very good closing lineup, and I think kind of it touches on what the previous question was. Is just Jay Crowder. Like last year, the Suns had a great defender in Mikhail Bridges. What they would do is they would unleash Mikhail Bridges on on perimeter players, like anyone from Damian Lillard to James Harden to Luka Doncic. But when you were playing those larger forwards, this is kind of where Kelly Oubre came up short. And so Jay Crowder is going to play a really pivotal role. He's got a 15 pound advantage on Kelly Oubre in terms of weight. Just when it comes to like, like this is the reason I really like Jeremy Grant as a free agent option too. I didn't like him for $20 million. Um, but so it's, you know, it's why I was willing to to settle for Jay Crowder. But just his defensive toughness is something that he's going to provide in closing roles. However, you can easily substitute Jay Crowder for Cam Johnson. And in fact, I think that's what they're going to do closing a lot of times when when they need an extra punch of offense. I just have this vision in my mind of like, you know, either Chris Paul or Devin Booker on the ball and a Spain pick and roll with one of those guys. Uh, DeAndre Ayton comes to the top of the key. He sets a screen. Cam Johnson comes to screen DeAndre Ayton's man. And then you've got Cam Johnson, a movement shooter, comes out to the perimeter. You've got an elite mid-range shooter in either Chris Paul or Devin Booker. Um, and you've got DeAndre Ayton, an elite lob threat. And it's just like triple threat scoring in a single play and in, in kind of its perfect form. Um, so I think like the things that you can do with Cam Johnson are just so advanced on offense beyond what you can do with Jay Crowder, where you basically just stick him in a corner. I, I also think to that point, uh, as much as it pains me to say this, there's a chance that Cam Johnson's in that lineup instead of Mikhail Bridges as well, depending on the defensive matchup because of Jay Crowder's he's thick as, as, as we talked about earlier Jay Crowder can guard some of the heavier forwards or even, you know, 
to some extent centers if you had to have him on those guys. Uh, so, you know, we'll see though, because I love Mikhail Bridges in these lineups no matter what. So, but I do think that Chris Paul likes playing with shooters like, like Cameron Johnson. And, and I think he's going to earn some minutes throughout the season, maybe even starting by the end of the season. Is there, so if you had to choose between Mikhail Bridges and Jay Crowder, like which one is going to be moved in and out of the crunch time lineup more, who would it be? I'd prefer Mikhail Bridges to be in that crunch time lineup more, but I think so much of that is going to depend on matchups because if I had to choose who I want guarding like Giannis or or LeBron, I'd choose Jay Crowder because Jay right. Crowder is just stronger. Uh, so I think it'll just depend on matchups. Uh, Sam, so let, let's start with you on this one. Is there like an offbeat lineup that you're hoping they yeah. test out at some point? This is my favorite yeah. question to ask because I spend way well, too much time thinking about it. <laughs> Because think about it, like last year, it's it's very similar to what the lineup was last year of just like, let's go get a stop, where they would play, Rub- you could play Rubio at point guard, and then you get Javon Carter out there to just harass people on the perimeter, and Mikhail Bridges is in there. Um, last year would be Kelly Oubre and DeAndre Ayton. This year, it's you just swap out Rubio for Chris Paul, and you swap out Kelly Oubre for Jay Crowder, and you just get a lot more toughness. And what you can do is it allows you to play Jake, uh, Javon Carter while still retaining like some semblance of offensive game. So it's just like, let's get a stop. Javon Carter, Mikhail Bridges, anytime those two share the court at the same time with DeAndre Ayton dropping back to protect the rim, and you got Jay Crowder in there, if you got a big body that he needs to bang with in the post as well, like it's just it's just fun basketball. It's just like pure serotonin watching <laughs> Javon Carter. Like like some of Mike's all-time favorite tweets of mine are just, you know, he'll react to plays as they happen real time during the game. And just like Javon Carter harassing people for 94 feet. It's yeah. it's just it's, you know, it's basic fundamental stuff, but it's it just gets the it it gets you going. It really gets the juices flowing. Any lineup with Chris Paul and Javon Carter harassing guards will be hilarious and fun to watch in general. Like if you think about like if they're playing the trailblazers or something and you just put Javon Carter and Chris Paul in to chase around Damian Lillard and CJ McCollum, that's going to drive them insane. They're going to, they're going to hate that. Uh, But beyond that, uh, if you do the sort of point book minutes um, with Booker at point guard, and then you could have, some combination of Mikhail Bridges, Jay Crowder, um, Cameron Johnson, and DeAndre Ayton as the other four. I love that idea just because you have so much switchable guys on that roster. And if you even want to kick DeAndre Ayton out out of that lineup and put Jalen Smith at the point right? guard, yeah. <laughs> if we're going if we're going super super small here, you could have Chris Paul, Devin Booker, uh, Mikhail Bridges, Cameron Johnson, and Jay Crowder at like small ball center. That's super exciting to me too, just to see. I don't know how often they're going to do something like that. Maybe DeAndre Ayton's in foul trouble or something, or they just have a team that they want to go really small against and see how it works. Those types of lineups are pretty exciting for me too. They have three wings that could play together on the floor with Mm -hmm. Devin Booker, and it could be really interesting to see that. Could have been four if they had Devin Vassell. Just saying, yeah, uh, well, that would be bizarre. My pick for them was the closest was to it was to your latter one where it was it didn't include Booker, uh, Chris Paul, Javon Carter, Mikael Bridges, Jay Crowder, and I got really weird and said Cam Johnson at the five there. Um, I'd be interested to see if we think that Darius Arch is the backup five. Maybe it's more realistic to plug him in there where it's a matter of oh hey Javon Carter comes in with Darius Arch and you're just you know you're pulling Aiton and and Devin Booker and they're going to get minutes together, but. I love just five out lineups and going super small. And I like the idea of 
Darius Hart is going to hold up better defensively, I think, at the five. But just because of Cam Johnson's shooting and then like not really needing to have the ball ever or having the desire to be like inside the arc ever, um, just surrounding that with Chris Paul and then having four guys who are legitimately going to be in everyone else's jerseys in Crowder, Bridges, Carter, and Paul. And like, honestly, I don't care who the fifth is if those four guys can just get plenty of minutes together. Dan, I I have to say, I I look forward to the end of the season when you're saying that that fifth should be Jalen Smith because you realize. (laughs) how much that Chris Paul loves to have an actual lob threat on the floor with him, and there's none. I'll advocate for Damian Jones then instead of Jalen Smith. (laughs) 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 So tying this all together, what's a realistic win total? And you could do it on an 82-game season because I have a conversion set up um, because I can't even put (laughs) anything into the context of 72 games. What's a realistic win total and also just Western Conference standings finish for for this squad? Oh, that's tough. Sam, do you want to go first on that one? Well, it's funny because their over-under is 38 and a half. And I feel like if I'm being objective, I have to like be close to that. But I just I think that's low. I just that's, that's a 44 low. win pace for yeah, uh, an 82 game season. It's a 44 win pace for a Chris Paul team. I just don't see it, frankly. Like like if they had just gotten Chris Paul and then they didn't go out and do the other stuff, like the Jay Crowder signing and they kind of botched free agency, I could see that. But I don't know. I think the complimentary pieces around Chris Paul are good enough on this team that like they can get to 42, 43, 44 wins. What is that? Like close to a 51 pace in a normal season? Uh, so you said, let's say, let's just go with 42. That's 48. That's not, that doesn't seem astronomical. Yeah, it's exactly where I think it should be. That doesn't like, seem astronomical at all. Yeah. Yeah. And I think they could be better. Like, I think it still could get better than like, while we're on this podcast, um, some news broke about James Harden not showing up to practice too with with the Rockets. And so if James Harden is moved, the, the West gets a little bit easier. Each time the West gets a little bit easier, I think about the, the Suns potentially moving up in those uh, standings a little bit too. And I, at first I thought if we're on an 82-game season, somewhere like 48 to 50 is where I would initially guess, which like you said is like 42, 43 wins in this weird 72-game season. But in, in most ways, I look at this team as better than – it's better than OKC – just because nobody at Devin Booker's I, level. Just as a note, uh, I love that OKC like spotted the market inefficiency in the West, where it was, oh, everyone's trying to make the playoffs or play in. Like, you know what? Fuck it. We'll just steer out of it. <laughs> and I think some other teams will do that too. Like, I think if Sacramento, if it doesn't go super well at first, they're going to say, all right, this draft is too good. Let's let's pivot in the middle of the season. I think there's a chance that other teams might do that too. If New Orleans, if if Zion misses some time, they might pivot at some point, and all of a sudden guys Not have... Not with their 14 national TV games. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, all of a sudden, Steven Adams' ankle is a little sore. I don't know if you can keep that guy off the court, but, you know, I, I do think that the draft is so good there are going to be teams that pivot towards being okay with losing more games this season uh, rather than what we expected, which was every team wants to make the playoffs right now. Uh, You know, maybe Houston's one of those teams, maybe New Orleans, maybe Sacramento, you know, I don't know about Minnesota, maybe Minnesota, who knows what they're going to look like. Uh, But, you know, I think the Suns could be better than people expect. It's just difficult. It's difficult to predict any win total in this specific season confidently because, first of all, we haven't even seen the entire schedule. We don't even know <laughs> what the fair. second half of the season is going to be. We don't know how much COVID is going to affect the overall win totals. But if we take all of that out, we're thinking about it in a vacuum, I think that they should be at about a 50-win pace, which – for non-Suns fans listening to this that think I'm insane, 
that's fair. Like we want to see it happen before we actually say this, but just from a completely objective standpoint, looking at the team and looking at what I think they should be, I would say they should be close to that 50 win rate on a normal 82 game season. Uh, non-Suns fans are not going to like what I have to say then. So I have them at 46 to 47 this year, which is 52 to 54 win pace. And yep. wow. my justification there is thus. I think they're, Mike laid out a lot of my argument. I think they're going to care about games in the regular season more than a lot of the other teams, even if they put Chris Paul in some sort of maintenance program. And yeah. um, just like Devin Booker, Aiton, Mikel Bridges, these guys are all young. And so like, who are you really trying to, to rest? Um, the, and you want to make the playoffs because um, Robert Sarver opened his piggy bank for Chris Paul. Like that's going to be like, uh, maybe Chris Paul doesn't even get rest because they're so concerned with making the playoffs. The other thing is, is, Oklahoma City played at a 51 pace this past year while not really leaning on Chris Paul like so heavily. They were terrible without him yeah. on the court, but like he didn't play as many minutes as you think. And so part of that might have just been they were unreal in crunch time. But I look at the non-Chris Paul pieces on the Suns roster and in the aggregate, well, one, Devin Booker is better than any number two that OKC mm-hmm. had last year. Like Shea Gilgis Alexander, even if for some reason you're higher on his future than Devin Booker, he's just not the creator for everyone else that Booker is. But just in sum, the talent is better um, after Chris Paul than that OKC team. And so when I look at that and combine it with that, I don't think a ton of the teams like I've sort of boiled it down to when I'm talking about a lot of teams as ceiling. I think one of the Clippers or the Lakers will end up being in front of uh, you could say, let's use the Suns for this instance. And then like one of the um, Blazers and Nuggets um, and Jazz are like right there. And so like those are two teams out of those five where I'm like, okay, they're definitely going to be in front of these teams. So like for a team like Phoenix, I'm like, I don't think third, fourth, fifth out of the West is like, that's not a huge yeah. leap. And if they're going to play at a 52 in pace this year, uh, maybe I'm going too high. Uh, perhaps they'll play Jalen Smith more than I thought. And I'll lower this to like a 36 win pace <laughs> or something like that. No, I, I actually think that's a fair thing to say. I, and, and part of it is like the warriors won't be as good as we thought they were going to be because no clay Thompson. So if you're, if you're looking at just the standings alone, Maybe it won't take as many wins as we expect to make it to like that third seed. That that could be it too. Uh, but just just from a, a wins perspective, like this team should be good. They should be really good. You know, Dan, we were just debating on our podcast yesterday. If the Suns do finish somewhere in the vicinity of like third to sixth, do you think there's a team like? Because obviously they want to. They talk about winning a championship, but we're mostly just concerned with getting out of the first round first. Do you think there's a team in that range that is either like a really good or a really bad matchup for Phoenix in a first round series? I would not want to see them have to go up against the Clippers. Um, because oh I, yeah, that's the team that's like I. I would like I. We I guess we all overrated them this past season, but like I don't think they match up particularly well with the Clippers, and so that's the team I think even more so than the Lakers for the Suns that you want to avoid in the the first round because like they actually have people they can throw up both Chris Paul and Devin Booker at the same time. And like the Lakers can't say that. I think the, uh, you know, when you're looking at the Lakers, like kind of wing defense at this point, um, you lose Danny green who defended a lot of point guards. Uh, Wes Matthews is like fine. He can handle some of the bigger wings, but like, I don't, I don't know that like how well he matches up with, you have to pick like you have Wes Matthews to throw at CP three or Devin Booker and then no one to Ooh. throw at the other one. So I just want to say real quick, Devin Booker murders Wes Matthews, absolutely kills him. Well, there the are with, multiple game winners on the record the thi- over Wes Matthews by Devin Booker. The, just after watching Wes Matthews defend Jimmy Butler for as long as um, Mike Budenholzer Mike actually allowed him to in the playoffs, <laughs> it should have been longer. Uh, that like I'm just I don't think I would prefer for the Suns. I don't want to face the Clippers like and I think they yeah. actually match up kind of well with the Nuggets. Um, especially like when you look at the Nuggets wing rotation now, it's so bare bones. They lost their, 
I would say two of their three best wing defenders. You have Gary Harris, Torrey Craig, and Jeremy Grant, and now they're they're both yeah. gone. Uh, two of those guys are gone. So yep. having Aiton go up Jokic against Jokic, is, Jokic has killed Aiton historically. But, yeah, but uh, he has I will say, go Aiton ahead. had a twenty-four point quarter against the Nuggets as well. So it goes it goes both ways uh, uh, on that team. They both kind of just beat up on each other a little bit, and you know, I I would count on more of a defensive improvement from Aiton than Jokic, but Jokic will still probably kill that yeah. that's a tough matchup for the suns in the past but i think with chris paul it could change a little bit the that's the only the clippers are the only team where there will obviously be other preferences i don't think you want to face lebron at all in the playoffs but yeah. do you yeah. guys spot any other team that's like a, a truly bad matchup for the suns as currently constructed oh. my second pick my, would actually be if golden state gets in the playoffs just keep me away from postseason steph and dre like yeah. that's just the oh, matchup yeah. you don't want yeah i look i think portland is kind of scary low-key um uh, I think yesterday when we were talking about it, we settled on Utah as like the team that we want. Like if there's any oh, team you we want. feel confident. Gotcha. Yeah, if there's yeah. any team we feel confident about in a first round matchup, give us the Jazz, which maybe is going to backfire on me 12 months. I also that. wanted Houston when I thought they would be making the playoffs with James <laughs> Harden. Because I love the idea of Chris Paul versus James Harden in a rematch, but without, you know, without any other sort of star on that team. So I don't know. Those are the two teams that I felt comfortable with. I, I will say like, Devin Booker's not afraid of the, the Clippers in any way, and he's obviously had that game winner in the bubble, and and but he's had some interesting shots against that team in general. They started the season with an impressive win over them last season as well. Uh, but yeah, I think you're right. When you talk about playoffs, everything changes, and the game slows down even more, and that's probably one of the worst matchups. I'm still personally afraid of the Lakers in a lot of ways, just the size becomes difficult yeah. to defend in a lot of ways. So those are the two teams. That's, that why, you have, the most. that's why you have Jalen Smith so that you can go do yeah, a things exactly. up front. Of, Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> um, is there anything that I missed or that we didn't talk about or something that's still undercovered about this team that you guys would like to discuss quickly before we wrap this up? The only thing I would reemphasize, I think we did a great job basically covering all the bases. Thank you very much for having us on, Dan. Um, I would just reemphasize that James Jones is is an enigma, even to those of us who cover the team on a weekly basis. And so I, you know, come trade deadline, like this team on paper doesn't seem to have many tradable contracts, but you just never know. And depending on what sort of position they're in in the standings and, and how much more of a leap they feel they can make, I would just say anything is possible. Well, the money that they can move is like you, I guess you can combine once they're eligible to be traded, Sarich and Crowder to really get like a bigger number. But Aiton's $10 million salary is going to be huge in any trade discussions unless they're just absolutely obliterating every single piece of depth that they have right now. Yeah, I think it's maybe close to $11 million almost this year. Not that that makes a massive difference, but yeah, I, uh, I also agree with that. I, I think it's going to be an interesting season for him, and I don't think he'll be afraid to pull the trigger on something. But I also think there's a chance they're just playing really well, and you just keep it rolling uh, by the time that, um, that comes, and, and I'd, like, I'd like that more. Um, because that flexibility is interesting too going forward. I also think, for the record, uh, Chris Paul is going to make a difference, and just them being good is going to make a difference for the refs. I we talked about this when we recorded yesterday as well. Uh, getting the whistle a little more uh, will help this team a lot going forward, whether that be Chris Paul or maybe DeAndre Ayton a little bit. And I think those types of things, you know, they they may not stand out at first, but a few extra free throws for Devin Booker every game could get him closer to 30 points per game. And, you know, maybe if they're in the top of the standings, if they're the three seed and Devin Booker's averaging 30 points per game, 
then you start to talk about him getting MVP votes, uh, maybe top five MVP votes, and, and that's pretty good for this team going forward. Uh, but I think there's going to be little things like that that make a big difference this season as well. I will say they added, they have like a team of facial expression all-stars now, just between Jay Crowder, <laughs> Chris Paul, um, and you could throw Javon Carter in there, I think, too. And so. even Booker. Yeah, there you go. Um, guys, thank you so much for giving me so much of your time. This was this was great. The Suns are going to be a super interesting team this year. If you're not following these guys who host the Timeline Podcast on Blue Wire uh, Podcast Network, do so immediately. You can find Mike Vigil at Protected Pick, spelled exactly as it sounds, on Twitter. And Sam Cooper on Twitter is at S. Cooper Hoops, also spelled exactly as it sounds there. Guys, thank you so much once again for coming on. And I think as you know by this point, you can definitely rest assured that I'll be pestering you again in the future. (laughs) Thanks, Dan. (laughs) Thank you, Dan.